Welcome, welcome back to another episode of Cinema Exposure. We are here back again on Spider-Man Week, which is what we're calling it, in preparation for the new Spider-Man movie, No Way Home. We have a week full full of retro Spider-Man reviews. So we had my co-host, Brandon White, host three separate episodes talking about the individual uh, movies from the Sam Raimi trilogy with Tobey Maguire. So if you want to listen to those, at the time of this episode being uploaded, those three episodes will have been uploaded on the different platforms our podcast can be accessed on that you've previously been listening to us on. But now I am here with two other guests to talk about the two uh, TASM movies, a.k.a. the amazing Spider-Man movies that never had their trilogy complete. So before we get into that, I want to first introduce our guests. Our first guest here we have is Alex Rivers. Alex, how are you doing? Um, I am doing um, great. It's great to be a part of like this um, podcast. Been um, listening and honestly, um, another um, shot to um, just give my um, thoughts out. And this is honestly like a nice thing that like I love doing. So I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you here too, man. Especially when we get to talk about more Spider-Man stuff. And then we got another friend of ours here on our episode, uh, Jackson Hendricks. Jackson, say hello to the good people. Hello to the good people. I hate everything you just did. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm here to talk about Spider-Man and give unpopular opinions. Are you telling me you're not going to follow the masses like sheep? Never. Not once in my life. Oh, how dare you not follow the popular opinion you hedon? <laughs> so before we even get into the episode, just so we can get some um, some background on the two of y'all, Alex, we'll start with you, and then Jackson, we'll go to you second. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, since we're talking about Spider-Man this week, can you tell us what got you into the character and how long have you been a fan of the character for? Well, I have been a fan of this character ever since um, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Um, I was at that age where I didn't go um, into like a movie theaters because like I was still processing uh, my life. And I didn't know that was a thing until Spider-Man 3 came out and I didn't see that in theaters. But um, my parents uh, made sure uh, they got me a copy of it. A good old bootleg. <laughs> it never fails. And ever since you know, I discovered um, the movies like on the uh, DVD and stuff, um, honestly, I was amazed. Like, um, I, I was like my first uh, ever. Amazed. So. Get it? You said amazed. <laughs> yeah. Clever. It was my first stepping stone into um, like Spider-Man as a character. I thought like um, um, Peter is like a very ordinary person with a whole lot of stuff that like uh, something that like never you never thought would happen to you until it does. And then like you discover like a whole new side of you and that aspect of Peter Parker, um, I enjoyed. And like, I ever watched all of the Spider-Man movies um, leading into like, I'm um, no way home. So I've been a fan ever since then. Thanks, Alex. Jackson, what about you? What got you into the uh, good old spider boy? So the fun fact about this is I honestly don't remember. Spider-Man has just kind of been in my consciousness for as long as I can remember. 
always been my favorite superhero, Peter Parker. Uh, I've the same thing with the Raimi movies. I remember seeing the Amazing Spider-Man movies for the first time. I don't remember the first time I saw the Raimi movies. I just kind of always have, and it's just always been a part of my consciousness. And anytime a new Spider-Man thing comes out, ever I to partake. I love Spider-Man so much. It means so much to me as a character. A lot of people, it seems that their introduction was the Raimi movies. I I, I was gonna say my introduction was the um the Spider-Man animated show from the 90s, but I think that might have been act- mine as well, actually. I think my actual introduction was Spider-Man and his amazing friends when they would show reruns on the uh, on like Gen yes. X. Yeah. Yeah, where I, it was, like, yeah, I watched that as well. Where mm-hmm. they would have like Spider-Man in college hanging out with Bob- Bobby, who was Iceman, and then uh, Iceman, uh yep. Fi- and Firestar. And I remember <laughs> in the opening, it was weird. Peter's reading a book, Firestar's chilling, and Bobby's just playing with his ice table for no reason. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, he, he, he's just sitting there in the oh open, just God, playing yeah. with his ice table like it's a sandcastle. But yeah, like it was either that or the 90s show that got me really into the mm-hmm. character. And then shortly after, uh, since my mom's been in the comic books, I started reading Spider-Man comics. Uh, I started reading like the Steve Deco stuff when Peter was going to college. So the the, the part in Peter's life in the comics where he was known as Chad Peter by today's standards, <laughs> which is where like all everyone knows all the tragedy in his life happens, which is what coincidentally a lot of what this movie take a lot of what the Amazing Spider-Man movies that we're going to be talking about today do take some liberties with with the iconic tragic moment in the sequel that we'll talk about. But before we get into it, I want us to go around just one at a time talking about what's everyone's history with the first Amazing Spider-Man film. Like, when uh, when did you first watch it? And back when you first saw the movie, what did you originally think of it? So uh, Jackson, let's start with you this time. Um, when did you first watch the first Amazing Spider-Man and what were your initial thoughts on the movie? Uh, I first watched The Amazing Spider-Man back in 2012 when it released in theaters. I was 10 years old at the time, and because of that, I was obsessed with it. Uh, I loved everything about it when I was 10 years old. Uh, And honestly, now I think about it, like Amazing Spider-Man might have been a big reason for me, like continuing to get into the character as much as I have differing thoughts on it now. that would that that first movie in theaters was a big moment uh, for me as a young child. Alex, what about you? Um, pretty much like the same thing. Like I just like saw like marketing, and I just like was in awe for it. Um, I was basically in all in for Spider Man, and just seeing um, Tasm One on the big screen was honestly a delight at the time. I um, liked it, um, and a couple years went by. I still appreciate um, um, the first Amazing Spider-Man movie, and honestly, that was just like a, sort of like a nice stepping stone for me. Is that like we get to see more versions of Spider-Man, and for um, them to like continue on, especially during that time, it was honestly like a nice surprise, and I really um, got into it. I don't remember much from when I first saw it. I know I saw it in theaters. 
And I'll be honest, I saw it in theaters once and I saw it again on home release. But for some reason until now, there's like this big section of my, of my brain that's like blacked out everything regarding Amazing Spider-Man besides Andrew Garfield. Because ever since I saw those movies, I always at least remembered, man, he, he's really, uh, he's the best actor to portray this character in live action so far, especially portray the guy behind the mask. I remember, uh, I'm not sure if y'all remember this, there was, um, there was an image before the movie came out, months before it came out, an uh, image of Garfield in the suit with his mask off he was looking down right and everyone and everyone mm-hmm. thought oh it's about to be the edgy spider-man the dark more serious one because for some reason around that time people were, were looking back on the raimi films and thinking those movies were too campy even though comic books by nature are very very campy products i can give you the answer it's because of the dark knight an amazing amazing movie that set some unfortunate trends yes and that's <laughs> why i want to get to next uh, just so we can go ahead and hop into the first movie. You can definitely tell this movie took some influences from um, uh, from studios reacting to The Dark Knight yep. and the wrong lessons because The Dark Knight, really well-made movie. I like it. But it's like studios saw the movie and thought, oh, people love this and consider this on the same level as a typical film because it's more darker and serious. Um what are some of y'all's opinions on how like the Dark Knight kind of affected not just the first Amazing Spider-Man's approach to its story, but just superhero movies of that time? What are some of y'all's thoughts on that? I guess I can start. <laughs> um, you know, it was at like a time where like movies were like getting more serious um uh, by years goes on and i think when it comes to spider-man like he is like a serious character and that is like pretty much rooted in his relationships showing that struggle and just showing um how much peter has to do he either can choose this life or choose that life but he knows he needs to sacrifice um something that um needs to be for the greater good in order to like um be the hero that everybody wants him to be i think that taking inspiration from the dark knight um really helps in a way to show that like we all know that he's a friendly neighborhood spider-man but we also need to understand that peter is not only just a hero he's also a hero that's dealing with a whole lot of personal stuff And we already know that he's an ordinary person. He can pretty much um, do all these amazing stuff. But really, it's the most vulnerable parts of him that makes him really exciting because he has to know how to take that responsibility and how to choose whether he can do this or not. And for that, like, I think that really hits the nail on the head as Spider-Man. So, like, that in and of itself was really interesting. (laughs) Jackson, what about you? What are some of your thoughts on how the Dark Knight kind of affected the approach to the the reboot of Spider-Man and like superhero movies at that time or movies in general in that period? Like Alex said, a bunch of movies were trying to be so self-serious to the point of just brooding. Right. My main thoughts there is, and I feel like it partially comes from the fact that the Dark Knight came out the year after Spider-Man 3, which was not well-received, unfortunately. We're not talking about Spider-Man 3, but I like that movie a lot. Uh, 
and seeing that what uh, I think Warner Brothers did with Batman after a uh, not dissimilar reaction that people had to the uh, uh, Schumacher Batman films, how those were campy, less self-serious, significantly worse than the Raimi films, of course. Uh, and, and instead of seeing why the Dark Knight worked and what made it work about it, less the tone and more the story and characters, uh, they saw the tone shift and the stylistic shift and assumed that's what would make it work. They go from the camp of the Raimi films into the self-seriousness of the first Amazing Spider-Man, which I think hampers it a lot, which we can talk about this more once we get to Amazing Spider-Man 2. But this first film, its direction is definitely inspired by Nolan's. But because of that, it feels much more studio mandated in its inspiration. It feels like there isn't a person behind the camera, but more a studio uh, giving direct line into the camera to point the shots, point the direction, everything on board, uh, which definitely hampered this film. But it also did enough, I think, to separate its identity from the Raimi movies uh, to the point that some of the similarities in plot to the first one, of which there are numerous, uh, enough that it doesn't become too much of a retread. So it's for better or worse, I think leans towards worse uh, in most cases, but that's my main thoughts. Just to build off of both of what, what both of y'all said about how there are parts of it that work that take the inspiration, there are parts of it that just don't. I think the biggest thing that doesn't work where it tries to imitate the tonal shift of how Nolan approached uh Batman in the first few Batman movies, um, some of the lighting in this movie is terrible. Mm-hmm. There, there, there are key pivotal uh, plot moments, like the scene uh, with Spider-Man and Captain Spacey. Uh, uh, Stacy, not Spacey. You know? <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. Wow. Maybe it's a good thing he died. Wait. <laughs> Wait, hold on. What is the title? Uh, we would like for him to be gone, but different person, Stacy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Captain Stacy, Gwen's dad. There's a big moment with Captain Stacy um, and Spider Man, and the lighting and the editing are horrendous where I can't really, it takes you out of this big emotional moment that's supposed to be a big moment for both of those characters. And it happens a lot throughout the movie is the lighting and the editing tries so hard to imitate the dark night that it's a hindrance on something I think, um, I disagree with you on Jackson about how mm-hmm. it, there's not much person, there's not a real voice and feels studio mandated. I mm-hmm. think the movie at the end of the day does feel studio mandated because of how they reacted to the way people did, like the uh, Spider-Man 3, and how they saw how people reacted to the shift with the Batman movies. I think there's still a voice because this, uh, the director here is Mark Webb. Really funny that they got a guy whose last name is Webb to, <laughs> to, direct, this, to direct the Spider-Man reboot yep. series. And um, I know a lot of people like his movie, uh, 500 Days of Summer. Um, my quick thoughts, not the biggest fan of it, but something I can at least give it credit for. There is a very uh, human approach to those characters that makes them feel very real um, and relatable. And I think that aspect of 500 Days of Summer that I personally didn't think work all that well, I think it works here because I think it works more because he has better actors <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to, to work with this time. God, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt slander here. I, I'm, I, I like him, but I don't like him that much in that movie. 
because even though the movie does really have its own voice because it's trying so hard to mimic the the Nolan approach to the uh, the mm-hmm. Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, I think a lot of the acting in this movie still feels it still it feels still true to these characters, but it's still going with its own approach that doesn't make them feel so overly self serious and edgy to the point where when they're talking, I'm in inve- I am still invested. Um, specifically, anytime they show uh, they show uh, P- they explore Peter Parker's selfishness, uh, portrayed by Andrew Garfield's performance, that I think we can touch on um at this moment so jackson let's start with you then we'll go with alex uh what are y'all's thoughts on andrew garfield in this first movie andrew garfield andrew garfield in this first movie uh is the best part of this first movie uh i think we can all say our thoughts on andrew garfield just in general with this as well i think he's the best spider-man uh i have issues with the movies i think he's the best like the portrayal, the character, all of it. I think he's the best to be put on screen uh, uh, as of yet. That, uh, that being said, like he's really what keeps much of this movie afloat as well as Emma Stone, but I'm assuming we'll get to her later. Uh, and the way he really humanizes and goes deep into Peter's flaws, especially in this high school age that they decided to set the movie in, uh, works so well. Uh to change this is one of the shifts from the Raimi movies I do really like is shifting from the more mythic sense that the Raimi films had which were still very human and natural and real this becomes I guess more like grounded in the humanity of it uh that I think works really well and I think Andrew Garfield portrays that excellently especially because of how concerned Andrew clearly is with the Peter side of the character what about you, Alex? Um, I, I definitely agree with Jackson when it comes to um, Peter being grounded. Because, like, um, Andrew Garfield is just really amazing. And honestly, I think that he was my first introduction to him in this movie as, like, an actor. And then, of course, we had, like, the social network. But him as Peter Parker, I think that he brings so much awkwardness to him. And I think that when it comes to Peter, like he's awkward in a way and how they implement into like the high school stuff. Um, I think that he really understands that a whole lot of people understood what this character means to them. And I think it comes to light that when um, when you get into him, he's really just like in awe of like, you know, just trying to like stand out just not trying to be like a person that is so lower down because you know um flash um always gets by him and he's trying to like you know appease to like um gwen so forth in the movie but just something about him just like a different version of peter that i didn't know i think i would see um andrew really um dove into that and one thing I would like um, in this movie is that like how um, his version of Peter interacts with um, Aunt May and Uncle Ben, too. And once we get into that to a second, because like I feel the relationship more when like um, Peter uh, gets into like um, his aunt and uncle, because like that was just like amazing. Ha! Gotcha. <laughs> Man, we need to keep a counter the amount of times he used 
the words amazing or spectacular in, in these episodes. <laughs> you gotta have like a counter that goes up each time you say it. We're two for this one. Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, I agree with what y'all said about Garfield's portrayal, especially because for, for those who've seen Five Over Days of Summer, that was all about showing the insecure the insecurities in the way that um, the male lead player, Joseph Gore-Levin, was projecting his insecurities and his perception of a relationship that was actually toxic. And mm-hmm. here you see some of those similar sensibilities, but not quite uh, the same with Peter. And something that I personally really like, um, I don't think it's really a spoiler to say, Uncle Ben gets shot and dies. Because I think everyone know, <laughs> I think everyone knows the Spider-Man origin at this point. If you don't, sorry, spoiler, <laughs> Uncle Ben gets shot for the 50th time. But... <laughs> Uncle Ben is the only constant death in comics. He's the only one who doesn't come back. Well, right. him and another person that we'll get to in the second movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But uh, something I appreciate with Uncle Ben's death is that Peter doesn't become overly self-righteous right after his death. He's still selfish. Mm-hmm. And that's something I appreciate about the character that I think makes him grounded in a different interpretation that we've seen uh, throughout comics for those who are comic book fans is that even though he knows that lesson is important, he's still driven by selfishness. And I think this is where the high school angle for me actually works. Even though he wants to follow the, les- the lessons of his dead uncle, he's following them through, through the lens of a toxic high schooler who's trying to show that he's better than everyone. I'll never forget when people say he's a great Spider-Man because, ooh, he has the line when he's quipping the dude who thinks killed his uncle. I'm like, no, that's a terrible, that's a terrible moment because Peter's pretty much being judged during an executioner rather than being an actual hero. Is showing that he mm-hmm. still has a long way to go before he becomes Spider-Man. We want him to be. Because it's like he he's taken too much of his Peter persona into Spider-Man. He still hasn't learned how to separate the two. And that's something I like about this movie is how we have taken the story of Spider-Man, but instead of that being really the focus, it's really the story about a high schooler learning how to take responsibility, not by from the influences that they've been surrounded by within the high school environment, but within the real world environments. Because I think Peter starts maturing once he's Spider-Man for long enough, especially the scene when he saves the kid uh, from that car. He takes off his mask. Right. I think that's the pivotal scene in this that's movie. That's a great scene. I think that's the, the scene in this movie where you start to see the character shift. Like, the, that, like that character, everyone thinks he should have been right after Uncle Ben's death. That's that moment when he starts to slowly become that character everyone wants him to get to. And I like how Mark Webb took what he did in 500 Days of Summer and showed Peter's toxic character traits and slowly evolved them over time as means of Peter having time moments of self-reflection, specifically um, uh, through his relationships, which is why I want us to get to our next character, um, uh, Gwen, played by um, Emma Stone, Gwen Stacy, or, or, or as I messed up earlier with uh, Cap- Captain uh, Stacy, uh, Gwen Spacey. But oh, no. uh, let's continue. <laughs> um, uh, Jackson, let's start with you, and then we'll go with Alex. What are some of your thoughts on how they 
uh, not only handle Gwen in the movie, but her and Peter's relationship within the first film. One of the other things I think these movies did better than the Raimi films is the love interest, and that is in Gwen Stacy, Emma Stone's portrayal. I love Mary Jane Watson, love what they did with her in the Raimi films, but Gwen Stacy, like, honestly, even in the comics and other incarnations, I've always found to be a better love interest for Peter. She's able to match him in much more interesting ways than a lot of times MJ is, but even in just this movie, she works well as a parallel to Peter. She's able to, once again, ground him and take him from Spider-Man to Peter very quickly. Uh, and Emma Stone portrays that so well. And I'm not sure I need to say it, but I will. Capital C chemistry between the two uh, and uh, of any of the love interests in the in the Spider-Man films, these two are clearly... Uh, I don't know about clearly, but the, these two, at least to me, are the most naturally uh, uh, together, uh, the way I see it. Um, and of course, Gwen Stacy's just a badass. Uh, and it's clear that, you know, as much as we didn't, as much as it would have been nice to see, we didn't. Uh, it, it clearly shows these seeds being set that she is the kind of person who would take on a Spider-Man to love her own. Yeah, especially at, I think, around this time when these movies were coming out, that's when the comics were actually finally exploring the Spider-Man multiverse and Spider-Gwen either came out around this time or just a year or two later within the Spider-Man multiverse. And before we get to you, Alex Jackson, just to interject with what you said about Gwen, about how she keeps them grounded, I think it also works because behind that facade she puts on very similar to peter she's just as awkward as he is right like even though both both of them and all the high schoolers in this movie look too damn old to be playing <laughs> high schoolers they have they have the natural like awkward moments like high schoolers would because of their genuine chemistry um with each other uh alex what are some of your thoughts on gwen and how they handle her in general and peter's relationship in the first movie well, I, my first introduction with Gwen, because like I was like in the midst of like learning on um, Peter's love interests and then there was Gwen Stacy, but um, I really like what they did um, in here, um, you know, just like learning uh, um, a little bit about Gwen and like we already had like a <laughs> Gwen Stacy and like um, Spider-Man 3, Emma Stone just comes in and just like crushes it. It's like she is the guiding light for Peter to escape, escape his like madness that like he was going through it, like after the events of like Uncle Ben's death and her and Peter's like um, slowly um, build up to their um, relationship. It's just so good. It's so genuine. Like you could tell like they have chemistry when the cameras are off. And I just like every bit of that. I like how um, Gwen is like, not only like, like I said before, like a guiding light, but she just wants to make sure that um, you're okay by the end of the day. And for uh, her father to interrupt uh, like on um, Peter, especially when it came to that dinner scene uh, where uh, Captain Stacy showed Peter 
that like what he was saying was really selfish and like he was not um like helping people who's doing it to be um just like hunting down i thought that was a good element that came to like uh, captain stacy but like gwen is really like the anchor that holds peter um together and like i think that the movie did an, an incredible job with that also weren't the two of them dating at the time of these movies Andrew yes. Garfield and Emma Stone. So I think that also helps with their chemistry. Oh, but um, something I, I like that the movie shows is that the movie's not afraid to show Peter's uh, creepy side because he kind of obsesses over Gwen a bit too much. And mm-hmm. it, I like how, unlike how, in my opinion, unlike how Mark Webb handles the creepiness of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character in 500 Days of Summer, when there's not full as much consequences as I will have liked. I think he handles it better here where there are consequences to Peter's uh, actions with how strenuous the relationship is at times. And that's where I get to the next part. Peter is so toxic in this movie that he creates the villain as his own selfishness. Yeah. <laughs> like the movie doesn't shy away that Peter is a selfish human being. And he becomes more selfish once his uncle dies. Like, he doesn't become this heroic uh, uh, goody-two-shoes character like everyone wants him to be yet, or the, the selfless hero who does the righteous things. Nah, he's still in it for his, own, for his own personal gain. Like when he gave Connors the equation to the formula, uh, uh, the equation to the formula he was looking for, he only did that because he wanted to learn more about his dad, not to help Connors... Um, regrow his arm back and then when he the the equation wasn't perfect what did it do to connor's it made connor's go crazy he turned into a giant uh 10 foot tall hell beast he he turned him into an anthropomorphic lizard <laughs> that, <laughs> that something that belongs in ninja turtles uh, he, or, or at least street sharks goomba lizard just pour him into the ooze and that's just it like i'm I'm surprised that he did not grow a shell it's like did peter give him like the equation to the the ooze mutagen from the ninja turtles to make him look like that but (laughs) but that's something i like like what's I'll go I ahead, was going to no, go say like was like uh, imagine like Dr. Connors' lizard uh, like show up in like Secret of the Ooze. <laughs> he starts he only. starts dancing as the lizard with vanilla ice to uh, go ninja go ninja go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, this is something that is going to become a common thing. I say about both these movies. I like how the all the villains and the, the Amazing Spider-Man movies are byproducts of Peter's um, either his selfless. In this movie, it's his selfishness, and the sequel is his selflessness, which we'll get to later. But Connors would not have ended up this way if Peter didn't rush creating something just so he can be like, "But my dad, though." And Connors over here is like, "But my arm, no. But my face, no. Now look what you did to me." Uh, so. Um, Alex, I'll start with you, and then we'll go with Jackson. What are your thoughts on how they handled uh, the villain of um, uh, Doc Connors, a.k.a. the Lizard, in the first Amazing Spider-Man? I I really thought, like, he was all right. You know, like, um, Dr. Connors um, is, like, a a really interesting character, and there's, like, 
aside to him that was definitely um got cut out from the movie like in the like the deleted scenes like he has a child and i feel like if they would have kept that um in the movie i think that would be a, like a nice interesting side to him and definitely show like that aspect because like a part of connor's is like he's not only a scientist but he's also like a loving father just um just trying to like um be a part of like his um son's life but like in this movie you know like he's just working and trying hard and definitely um not only when he got that equation like it definitely pushed him um to not only uh like just test it on himself but uh to become this um lizard i do think that um the lizard is pretty much all right you know um soon down the line like we discovered the lizard's plan but like i think he's all right he's definitely um not like big but like for like a solid level villain i think he's all right for like um the story that like they thought that would work for him but i think it would been like a much bigger um better version if like we included that family aspect that i wish they could have kept uh i basically uh, agree with uh mostly what you say about uh, including the family aspect i actually didn't know about that uh, I was going to say I I enjoy the performance and aesthetic of the lizard. I don't hate the design like a lot of fans do. I wish he kept the lab coat, but you know it's whatever. Uh, for the most part, I find the the despite Reese Ifon's wonderful performance, I find the lizard and Connors to be a rather one note villain. Uh, that if they had kept the the family element, uh, would have made him much more dynamic and interesting. It also doesn't help that I draw a lot of parallels between his story in this film and uh, a lot of the the story of the Green Goblin in the first film. Uh, that's beside the point. It, it's not too much of a detriment, but there is some of that that still borders on retread of the first film uh, from Raimi. Uh, however, with that. Uh, it's also just a bit more of a personal gripe that I have. I've never liked the Peter pa- the Peter Parker parents storyline that they do in this film or in the comics. Uh, and the fact that he is connected to that does not help my enjoyment of the lizard. That's not something I can really throw against the film. That's more personal gripe that I have. Uh, but despite that, even Connors isn't given much here. He's just kind of like, I want to grow my arm back. Uh, and you know of course helping people out with that but that's his primary motivation there he wants to grow his arm back and then he goes crazy and wants to uh turn people into lizards uh there is some nice setup there with oscorp for amazing spider-man 2 but that isn't for this film uh so for the most part i enjoy the aesthetic i enjoy his vibe and the performance otherwise i find him rather one note and uninteresting to jump on what alex says first because um, I'm very much familiar with a lot of Spider-Man uh, stories from the comics. I was shocked that in the deleted scenes, they took out the family stuff because that's his whole reasoning for wanting to get revenge um, on, on like Oscorp in general. And But I will say something I appreciated uh, that I didn't notice until uh, this rewatch is that I think a lot of, what we don't know and the little we know about the lizard and Doc Connor's motivation is intentional since so much of this movie's lens is told through Peter's selfishness where 
we as the audience will only learn as much about the lizard slash Dr. Connors based on how much Peter uh, internally actually wants to know and learn about him. And I think some of that in the second half is established when we first get the POV shot of him swinging around uh, looking um, um, in the city. And then we see the mask in the mirror. I think that scene really establishes in that second half how, well, even the first half in general, how this story is, is limited in scope of what we know about uh, Connors at the end of the day because of Peter's selfish desires and behavior and how Peter has caused Connors to fall down this path. And um, I do agree that the lizard's plan is silly to turn everyone to like, like little, like little mini me's, little mini lizards, like little action figures. It, it's, very, it's very, it's <laughs> very silly. Yeah. One of us uh, consume uh, it is very silly, but it's one of those silly comic book type uh, mm -hmm. like uh, plans that I personally really enjoy because uh, it's very much like the campy nature within the seriousness that I like in comic books. But I also like how it's a great uh, reflection on how much Connors has eternalized a lot of the harmful parts of Oscorp. Like Oscorp's there. I don't think it's only there as set up as a lot of people like to believe. I think the backdrop of Oscorp and the way we see people walk around when we're in that location, I think... Um, Connors has eternalized this idea that everyone, if he's going to be a leader, must act and uh, act, look and perform like he does. So as a creature, the same way Oscorp itself makes its workers and everyone who is affected by Oscorp operate as these same homogenous monsters or creatures that create these horrific things that we see in the sequel. So for me, I saw a connection between the reason, not exactly why the list was playing is the way it is, but the, the psychological reasoning behind the plan and how it's um, a mere reflection of what Connors has eternalized the harmful practices that uh, Oscorp has put within him for working within it for so long, if that makes sense. So I see a lot of that on that end working, how that connection in itself and how Connors is a tragic character that Peter is like, wow, I've really mess this i've really messed this up because i've learned very little about him and because of the limited lens i've given myself and the audience for the story look what happened to connors and some of the people involved in this story and i think that evolution of the character of peter not learning of learning very little about him and then peter wanted to learn so much more about people in the sequel it's the natural progression of his character to the character that goes from being very self uh, uh selfish to very self-obsessed over wanting to know about people that becomes even more of a detriment to those around in the sequel. So I think Connors and the psychological aspects of his character, it's a way very similar to how I think some parts, uh, this is going to be a weird comparison. He's very similar to Tai Long from uh, Kung Fu Panda in a way where he's very much a, um, a, a tragic character as a result of other people's uh, systemic mistakes, but you don't learn that much about him due to the intentional narrow perspective you give him based on who we follow in that story. I see that same type of narrative approach similar here with Connors. Um, I think since we're shifting uh gears a little bit before we shift gears a little bit more uh do y'all have any final thoughts on the lizard uh before we move on to like the last bit about the first movie 
None for me. Um. Yeah. Um. Same here. All right. So uh, let let's talk about the Spider Man suit. The the suit that for some reason has caused a lot of debate within the Spider Man for community for uh when this come out twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is yep. spark debate for uh nine years. <laughs> so what are y'all's opinions on the the the, the basketball suit as it's been uh, coined as. It's fine. Yeah, it's, 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 it's serviceable. It gets the job done. Uh, I, I will say that like um, when it comes to like that suit, um, it, it, it does not look good in daytime. <laughs> like when Peter puts on that suit, it just, the lighting is always off. But nighttime, <laughs> It, like you see the details in that suit, and that looks um clean. It it was like a very unique um take on the suit. It's like something I like the ordinary. You still got the red and like um the blue, but like um you know like the patterns and everything was different. I wish they would have kept um the lens a little bit bigger because like something was off to me about like his suit was definitely like the lens I didn't think that was like right but like that suit is like beautiful in the nighttime I will give them that with the lenses I have seen this one thing that people have shared about the suit and that if the lenses weren't this like gross yellow orange color and if they were just the pure white that it traditionally is the suit would look so much better. And I've seen that Photoshop and they're right. Uh, if you haven't looked at that, you definitely should. Because otherwise, because like with that simple change, the suit is instantly much better. For me, I've always thought the suit was fine. Like part of the suit, it's still one of those things where I will never debate that, wow, it's not realistic to have a suit look that precise for uh, superhuman combat but at the end of the day this is comic book logic and i'm like mm-hmm. let, let's keep some of this some of this stuff very out there let's not make everything grounded thank you very much mm-hmm. also i don't know what it is about those eyes they are ugly as all get out but yeah. why for some mm-hmm. reason it looks like he cannot find anything else so he found them out of like a used toilet in a trash can (laughs) on his mask homie ripped apart sunglasses and that was a good idea sunglasses (laughs) so gross the the, the costume is cheap and i'm glad the costume starting out is cheap looking for once (laughs) yeah i will say this that suit does not translate well into video game no, it, it, um, I'm not going to talk about the how it's now DLC in the um the, the PS4 and the PS5 remaster. Uh, I mm-hmm. think it looks fine there because they've added some touches that look better. But if you've ever played the Amazing Spider-Man game that came out mm-hmm. that takes place in between one and two, that that suit looks terrible in that <laughs> it game. Looks so bad. It does not translate to video game at all. Especially when it comes to the battle damage, um, when it comes to that suit, like you, you get so much beating, it's like it's all like um, teared up. I mean, it's like a cool effect because like we we all love like dam- damage and battle, but like with that suit on, it was like, hold up, <laughs> something 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 ain't looking right. <laughs> it's like for that game, they should just change it to the traditional white eyes because the more his suit got damaged, the more attention your eyes are on his eyes and his eyes at a point when they get damaged, 
they just look like two boo-boo stains on the mask. That's all that's all they look like. It's just two boo-boo stains on the mask. It is so ugly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um but are there any other thoughts or any other comments you would like to share on the, the first amazing Spider-Man before we jump into the, the big one that everyone talks about? Um, I will say that, like, um, when it comes to, like, the first Amazing Spider-Man movie, it's, like, and, like, I was never in the phase of, like, people comparing it to the, like, the Raimi um, trilogy. It's, like, we all know this is a different take on Peter, but it's trying to be its own thing. And I think that with new takes of whatever character that you're into, as long as it has, like, um representations of spider-man while also giving us like a fresh new take while not being just like a copy of for shot and shot like it truly stands out and i think like it does that <laughs> as a final thought i'm going to have to disagree with that <laughs> um my main issues with this film for reference i'm the only one of the three people here who does not like this movie uh my issues with it come down to, and I do like the new stuff that it does. My issues come down to it. I think as a, as it's plot, it follows too much of the original Raimi films while still switching in things. Instead of Green Goblin, we have the lizard. Uh, in, in, instead of uh, Uncle Ben dying from a, uh, God, what is the, uh, from a wrestling match, it's from a mugging gone wrong, but in a much similar vein. Uh, I feel like it follows too much of those similar plot beats to the first film, which of course some of that is uh, the uh, the Spider-Man origin and there's not much they could do about that, of course. But I feel like with that, too much of it came from, like we mentioned earlier, the studio mandated Dark Knight uh, kind of feeling and tone that I really don't think Mark Webb wanted. Uh, and I feel like that shows especially in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which we will talk about momentarily. But that's that's where much of my issues come from. And also, I just think it's boring. Yeah, I think here I probably like this uh, slightly more than Alex. And I definitely like it more than Jackson. Yeah. Um, sp specifically because my main issues just come from technical aspects where when it when it does try to do like the Dark Knight type imagery, the, the lighting at some points and key pivotal character moments is horrendously bad. Like there, um, um, the, the final fight with the lizard towards the end, uh, there are some uh, there are some cuts as Peter's fighting the lizard where I'm like, this is, for one, it has bad staging. And then, and then two, some of the sound mixing when people crash into stuff is just off. But I guess something that I just appreciate about this movie is that mark webb was able to keep his emotional sensibilities from uh, the movie that everyone knows him from while also keep was he was able to keep that present while while he may not have the uh, the visual aesthetic he wanted just because the studio is like dark night dark night dark night dark night dark night we all know that for sure but it, there's so much of a trend from that time it's hard not to think there's that one studio exec that thought that, and most likely there was. I'd be really surprised if it turns out there was. I'd be like, y'all lying. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's great that he still kept his emotional, humanistic <laughs> sensibilities while not being able to allow it to have the style 
that he wanted with the visual aesthetic of the film. Is the visual aesthetic uh, grading uh, for some people more than some? Yeah, because for the most part, for me, it just got the job done. It wasn't really to the third act. It really uh, bothered me because I was really vibing with the movie pretty well until uh, the issues I brought up with a combination of this movie for an origin story didn't need to be this, this long. Um, I was enjoying this one much more than I, I thought I would have. That and thank you, um, the people involved with this movie, not having Uncle Ben's speech be word for word for word. Thank you. I've read that so much in books. I've watched the Raimi movie so often. I don't need to hear that again. Oh, and also I would like to point out that in this movie, I, I like <coughs> um, their inter- interpretation of Flash Thompson. Mm-hmm. Like, like seriously, like when he like certain point he was the bully, but after when he after when he learned that Peter's um uncle um died, he 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 wants to be there for him, and that is something that I would never expect Flash to do, especially in of it in that character for him to just like you know like I am sorry about this pain that you have. And like slowly building up to that friendship, but especially during the end, it's like if if there's anything I can do, like I, I'm gonna still be there for you. I thought that was beautiful. I, I, if only if they were allowed to make a third and fourth movie, like Flash, that was kind of like the start of Peter and Flash becoming really great friends uh, in the comics when they got to college, especially when Flash came back from serving in the war, and then years later, Flash becoming like Agent Venom and finding out who Peter is and he teamed up a lot. That, that would have been great if they actually were able to do that. And also, there's a scene after uh, Peter fights the lizard at school where you see Flash outside. It really looks like real quick, if you look at his shoes, Flash has on some Timberlands. <laughs> like, if you look real quick, it looks like he has on some <laughs> nice, classic Timberlands. <laughs> or as some people, uncultured Good people... For him. Or as some uncultured people we know, some people will call those boots. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, I think those are our thoughts on the first Amazing Spider-Man. That's more than I thought we would say, yeah. honestly, for that yeah. one. Mm-hmm. But now let's talk about the real controversial uh, rabbit in the room. Let's talk about the Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> so before we kick this off... Um, Alex, you started with we started with you last time with this question. Jackson, we'll start with you. Jackson, what was your um, experience watching the first Amazing Spider-Man, and how often have you seen it since before we recorded for this episode? And what were your initial thoughts on it? For the Amazing Spider-Man two, I had a similar experience that you did with the first one, Jay. I saw it in theaters, and I don't remember anything about that experience whatsoever. Uh, and I have not seen it since, uh, except for my most recent re- rewatch. I couldn't tell you. I, 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 I know for a fact I saw it in theaters uh, when it came out. And I didn't watch it again until uh, two days, two or three days ago. Beautiful. <laughs> Alex, what about you? Um, I actually saw this with like a, a group of friends. So like I even I created it and like we were at the theater and we was watching it. And after I got done watching it, like, uh, of course, a little old me uh, back in high school, I like I thought this film was like <laughs> great. 
Uh, but then, like a uh, couple years down the line, I was like being a follower and falling to the trap of like, yo, this movie is just not good. <laughs> and then, I but I still remember some parts, and then rewatching um the film now, um, they it, it definitely has changed like uh, my heart. So like Spider-Man 2 was like back then loved it middle like I did like like for some reason I was following people this one like I appreciate it. <laughs> I, I had I had an experience that's similar to the combination of the two of you. I saw I saw it with a few people and I barely was paying attention to the movie because I, I, I was that comic book nerd who's like, I know what's going to happen based on the marketing. I'm just waiting for that one moment to happen like the sick Muppet I am. I was just waiting to watch other people's reactions to monster to the scene. Uh, or as I would say, waiting for people to be snapped back into reality with that scene. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> No. And, yes. And it snapped me back into reality because it made me realize, oh, I wasn't paying attention to the movie at all. And I just thought, oh, the movie just must be <laughs> <laughs> and it made me just think at the time, oh, this movie must be bad because I don't remember nothing from it besides that scene. The scene I knew that was gonna happen. But um besides seeing it in theaters, I saw it once at home. And even then, for some reason, I don't remember much from watching it the one time I ran it at home. Besides the fact that that suit looked good. That was about it that I remember. But since then, I only saw it those two times. And now the third time for um, our episode. And that's about it. So let's, uh, uh, Alex, let's just start off with you. What are some of your, not your full thoughts, but what are some of your initial thoughts to the beginning of The Amazing Spider-Man 2? You know, it's iffy on me. Um, you know, like the true start of the movie, um, we get a like an extended backstory of Peter's parents. And, you know, like at the time, like I, I thought it was interesting, like just showing the light about like Peter um just uh peter's parents just like uh, what were they doing oh uh, how did uh, like what really happened to i thought that was like a nice little um mystery um and i was like very interested to see how um that um played out but um i don't really um like uh like that backstory um as i um do now because like how they handled that and I I will talk about that later in like a second but like that true opening of like when Peter is just like falling down just starts swinging hands down this is like the best web swinging that we ever seen Spider-Man do and that suit is just so good looking like a huge upgrade like we see Peter just doing a daily routine of like protecting the city while also trying to like uh, be on time for graduation and good old classic Peter seven a day but always had to be late when it comes to certain types of things and again just like that that Peter doesn't really have time to be um, there um, but like how um, that opens up I thought that was like a really nice introduction it's like just like you know regular Spider-Man just like um, saving the day as usual. <laughs> 
Jackson, what about you? What are some of your initial thoughts at the beginning of of, of TASM 2? Of TASM 2. Uh, once again, not something I can directly put against the film uh, itself. I'm still not just, I'm just not a fan of the, uh, the parent storyline in the comics or in this. It's not for me. That being said, though, after that opening and the like first like 10, 15 minutes, I think is quite like maybe the best Spider-Man on film ever. Uh, the, like Alex said, the web slinging, the suit, the action, uh, the way Peter's talking with the people on the street and with Paul Giamatti's Rhino, all of that opening, the fact that he whistles his uh, uh, his his theme while just cockily throwing around stuff, uh, and he's problem solving throughout the thing. He's making choices and adjusting and the action is so well directed. That's one of the big things about this movie. The direction is incredible. It is such a big jump uh, in quality from the first film, at least in my opinion. Uh, and this opening showcases that I adore the first like 10, 15 minutes of this movie. I think it's incredible. I think it's fantastic. Perfect Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I, I agree with all that. That scene after we get the stuff with the parents, I love how they so established the visual direction of Spider-Man. Mark, you can tell Mark Webb was allowed to direct this movie the mm -hmm. way he wanted because the directing in this movie, not just in the action scenes, but in the conversations, they are very, very well done. Like, I know there, there are plenty of things people have the right to criticize this movie for, even if I don't, I don't agree with all of them, because I like this movie a lot. I'll just put that out there right mm -hmm. now. Uh, I think something that completely gets overlooked in how this movie is well-directed. Like, this is great visual filmmaking and visual storytelling between characters as they're even talking. Like, even, uh, like, like there's a moment where, to jump out of the action stuff for a second, come right back to it, there's a converse, the conversation when Peter and Harry meet up for the first time in a while. The camera really knows how to play around with doing slight movements to show a constant shift of the power dynamic between the two of them and how which one has control over like the scene and which one doesn't. Like that is a great uh, that is a great director to direct to have subtle but a lot of energy behind the camera moments like that. But back to the web slinging for a second. They I like how the beginning scene was Spider-Man as he's swinging through the city, chasing after uh, crazy Paul, uh, Paul Giamatti. I like how the movie establishes uh, his spider sense. Uh, they use as a way to establish the motif, uh, the central theme of this movie, which is time. I think time is probably the big core idea that does its best to hold everything together. Because I think we can all agree. There's a lot in this movie that, of course, even though Webb got to do a lot of what he wanted, there's still extra stuff that got put in because the studio's like, we have to have our Sinister Six. We have to have Goblin. We have to have um, a, a certain horrific scene uh, replicated from the comics. But I think what helps a lot of that is the per how the perception of time is used. Because I think every character, not just Peter, He's the big one because we focus on him a lot. Everyone is obsessed with time in this movie. They're obsessed with a person that's connected to the concept of time. Everybody wants to get to this end goal because they're in a rush to get it. And they don't want to put in the time to maintain their relationships or, or, or strengthen them. They want to have 
the end goal of what they envision a relationship with a person, whether it be romantic, platonic, or just friendly would look like. And because of that, uh, that core theme of time, connected with the core theme of people being so obsessed with another person, there are consequences to every character's actions. And I think that, uh, that how everything feels rushed and how everything feels like it's muddled and jumps around so much. If this movie didn't have that core central theme, I don't think it will hold itself together as well as it as well as it does. And I think if people were to appreciate that theme, that central theme of the movie more, this movie holds up better than a lot of people give it credit to, in my opinion. Uh, uh, either one of y'all can interject on this. What are some of y'all's thoughts on um, or any of the, on any of the comments I just said about how this movie? handle uses its theme to hold itself together despite the obvious studio interferences with the mm -hmm. film uh, well i think that's one of the like interesting things like it's a part of the difference between the first one and the second one the first film at least to me feels very thematically devoid it doesn't feel like it has much that it's trying to say this one while i still think it gets too muddled in its plotting uh to really dive into that as much and part of that is the studio interference that went on with this it is able to have that central idea, like you said, of time uh, that while it still tries to do a lot more, like it also weirdly enough tries to be about choice as well, uh, which kind of works, kind of doesn't. But the central idea of time uh, absolutely does uh, work here and uh, holds it together. And once again, showcases the difference between what happens when you let kind of let a filmmaker do his thing. It, it, especially before I, I let Alex jump in, um, it also allows Mark Webb to show that not only is Peter the victim of these issues, um, the villains, uh, Gwen, Aunt May, every single one of them all have this central flaw about themselves uh, because of what happened in the last movie that I think, uh, despite how it does get muddled with his plotting, I think those, uh, these, the similar flaw, all these characters is what holds it together. Alex, what are some of your thoughts on what me and Jackson have said so far? Um, like I, I basically like agree, like everything you guys some said, like um, the time is basically, I, I kind of think of that is like being in the moment, like you're experiencing everything and you're kind of just like letting on like, you know, what, what should I do next? Or like, how should I handle this? It's like the experience, like um, the movie brings to you, especially um, throughout the beginning. I, I think that works very well. Especially with how that aspect is emphasized by Peter's spider sense. Because even when stuff is slowed down for him, he doesn't always still make the right decision. And I think that's something that's really unique about Peter in this movie. He's so obsessed with getting to the end goal of knowing about his parents, getting to the end goal of him and Gwen are actually going to be together rather than just let himself sit in that not knowing stage. And because of that obsession, he messes up his other relationships like with Aunt May and, uh, and Harry, who we'll get to in a second. And even this affects Electro uh, in a way, uh, in, a, in a way too, that just, it, it just makes all of them together. It's like this really interesting domino effect. And 
as much as some of the stuff of Oscorp we could honestly have gone without, I think a lot of what works about this movie is how everyone's a byproduct of this shitty company. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think just its presence there, how everyone's affected, especially, especially Harry. I think there's some stuff you could take out, but I think if you took out all of it, this core theme of the movie would just be completely devoid and empty. Um, So let's jump to that character for a second, since I know that's a character that people have very mixed opinions on. Uh, What are y'all's take on uh, Dane DeHaan's uh, approach to Harry Osborn slash the Green Goblin in this movie? Um, you know, like Harry is like a pretty much like a core member um to Peter's life, especially uh, when um, both of them were like um kids, and like for them to have their own like um reunite factor in this, like I I, I thought it works. Like Dan DeHaan, um, I I think like he's like amazing in Chronicle. I, I like I really love that movie. So for him to play Harry Osborn. He, he definitely, like, looks the part for me. And, like, for him to have, like, um, this, like, uh, like, friendship with Peter, but also discovering that, like, what happens to Harry of, like, him having this goblin disease, I think that, like, really builds on some very interesting stuff. And with, like, Norman, too, is, like, because, like, they... <laughs> like ended Norman uh, just like that and I would really love to see like more of like how they would handle it especially like Oscorp as a whole so like now you have to like really tell the story about Harry through also like um, him and Peter and I think that dynamic of itself is like um, cool because like I think when it comes to like their friendship especially when it comes to their friendship now in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is pretty much like I don't want to like hurt you the same way that like your um parent did and I just want to like be there for you so like all that of itself was like very um cool but like throughout more um you know I do have my like it's and so bus like going a little bit further but like that in and of itself was like really interesting. Jackson, what about you? Uh, I have to agree. I, I really, if it isn't abundantly clear to everyone, if you want to leave now, all three of us really like this movie. Yeah, it's like if, <laughs> if you're someone who cannot listen to people who like a movie that you don't bounce, this ain't the show for you. Bye. We'll do well without you. Bye bye. Yeah, yeah uh, please go. There's a door. <laughs> <laughs> there's a door and there's a trash can. You probably belong in there with your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yes, as far as Dane DeHaan goes, I think he's great. Uh, and I really do think the chemistry between uh, him and Peter works well uh with these long lost friends basically they haven't spoken to each other in so long and they definitely play on that really well uh i also do really appreciate uh that and this is another thing that they distinctly separate themselves this version of harry is so different from james franco's version uh and i'm not too well versed in the comics but as far as i'm aware this is a more comic accurate portrayal of harry i'm sure jay could speak more to that than i could uh but 
Um, just interject on that comment. Go ahead. Um, there are parts of it that are, it's their complete own reimagining of the character, but there are certain okay. aspects like his addiction towards wanting that serum to help himself. It's a, um, I think that's a slight hint to how in the comics Henry had like this uh, analogy for like a drug addiction because right, of how, right. like when Norman says, oh, I pass this curse on to you. It's that, I think it was referring to that aspect of, I pass the goblin stuff down to you. And it's like a drug curse, if you will, especially um, not to give too much away, but how it ends, how Harry ends up as a goblin, he is kind of addicted to how he gets into mm-hmm. a system. So there are comic book accurate parts to it, but there's also enough of it that feels very refreshing. It's like, it's as if a new writer for a comic came in and gave their own spin on the character, but uh, continue. Awesome. Uh, yeah, no, and with that and with Dane DeHaan's performance, and I, I, I do really like also how they showed him being the head of Oscorp, uh, something that the Raimi films did not, uh, and showing how that affected him and continuing to go deep into the uh, Oscorp being a really shitty company uh, aspect of, of this story. Uh, the one thing about it that I'm not a huge fan of, and we'll get more to this later, I feel that they rushed his storyline way too much and they should have stretched it over at least one more movie. Yeah, that's something I agree with just because, first off, I don't believe that Norman Osborn died. I feel like <laughs> if they had, I feel like they had two more movies out. I've watched a lot of fan videos about what the possible plotting could have been. And uh, that guy in the, um, that we see at the very end, the shadows who confronts Harry after everything happens at the end of the movie, uh, a lot of people believe that's uh, supposed to be Norman Osborn, really, mm-hmm. still alive, but in disguise. And the person who died was the chameleon, which I thought that, that would make... I feel like if they had, like, two other movies, there have been so much in this movie that would have made so much more sense mm-hmm. uh, with it. J- just because despite how it may be overstuffed to a degree. I don't, I don't feel like if they were to continue it, it will have failed. I feel like it actually will have worked if they were allowed to keep the story going, especially with Harry, because Harry's do. story is definitely not done. But um, the one thing I liked with this version of Harry uh, and Peter's relationship, unlike in the comics, it's just Harry and Peter who have a relationship, not Harry, Peter, and Gwen who have a connection, or Harry uh peter and mj who have a connection it's just the two of them and i think that was a smart choice especially it was a smart choice not having those scenes that they shot with uh shailene woodley as mary jane i'm glad they left that out of this movie because it helps peter and harry's relationship feel very real that and again the way harry reacts to stuff when he's talking to peter you you not only see the maturity difference and how far um Peter has come because of being Spider-Man as is, but you also see what happens when you have nobody to ground you. Peter is able to not be so upset. Like he has a possession issue with uh, wanting to make sure he's he's too close to his loved ones, but his loved ones keep him grounded. And I like how Harry is what if, is what would happen if you don't keep Peter grounded with some people. I like how both Harry and Electro are two different ends of the extreme of what happened if Peter didn't have somebody. Like, Harry is the one end if Peter didn't have somebody to keep him grounded if he was a spoiled rich brat. And <laughs> Electro is what happened when Peter wasn't grounded and he was just completely alone and everyone treated him like a nobody. 
so what Peter Wolf become in the first place if he didn't have the spider bite him or if he didn't meet Gwen in the first movie. So I think some stuff of Harry could have been fleshed out more with how he's so obsessed with um, how much time he has left to live. Rather than he's actually, obsessed with the spider blood. Yeah, he's obsessed with spider blood. <laughs> like, 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 like the drug addict he became with the Goblin Serum in the comics. And <clears throat> just, just the way... Harry is so obsessed with these material objects rather than his relationships really shows how different he is with Peter, but they both have that same central motif that they're both obsessed with the end goal because they feel like they don't have enough time in the day and in their lives to reach a goal. So speaking of that, and since I already mentioned them, let's jump to good old Jamie Foxx for, for a minute. Good, good, good old homeboy who uh, started out making started out making music and was on in living color and had the Jamie Foxx show. So I'll just say right off the bat, when I first saw Electro in the movie years ago, I was like, "Why is he blue? <laughs> Why is he blue?" Because I was because at first I didn't think movies were taking that much inspiration from the Ultimate Universe. Because in the Ultimate Universe, Electro is blue, so. Uh, Electro's design never really bothered me personally because he's either a Smurf or he looks like a Super Saiyan. There's there's only two there's only two options with that. So one of y'all can jump in for this next question. Uh, what are y'all's current thoughts on on how they use Jamie Foxx's Electro and how he's connected to not just um, Harry but how he's used as a foil to be a reflection of what Peter Parker could have become without having loved one in his life. Uh, one of y'all can jump in on that. I think that when it comes to Max, um, I, I, I never would have expected for them to um, dive in to um, this, especially when it comes to training Max into a, like a big super fan um, that like he is. Um, just that, because like I don't know much about um, Max. All I know, he's like an electrical engineer. That's pretty much like who he is. And then he gets the accident and then he becomes electro. But I, I do like what they did. It's something like I didn't like appreciate back then, but like I do appreciate now about how like, Someone, an ordinary person who likes um, Spider-Man, who thinks that Spider-Man is just like a big, um, fantastic hero that everyone is just dismissed because, like, you know, he's just doing what other people can't um, for, like, him to, like, just uh, get shut out by everyone including his own hero that he looked up to i thought that was like a nice way of like showing that like how someone who just wants to look up to the most um just gets shown up by his hero really dives into like a dark um path and i, I could tell like jamie was like having fun in this because like after he like gets his powers and with the miracle electricity, he get, gets his gap fixed. <laughs> and the electro stuff is like um amazing, but like I, I like how this shows like the world shun him out. So I'm going to shun them out and like get uh like my revenge. I, I think that like Electro is really like a terrifying um villain. And I think that, like, I know, like, the film, like, has a whole bunch of heroes, but, like, if the film really focused on, like, Electro, 
I, I, I think they could have, like, done it, like, very, uh, very good. Because, like, you know, there's quiet moments with him. But, like, the scenes where he's eating up are just so good. And let me just say, I don't care what anybody says after my rewatch when it comes to that final battle and where he just plays the itsy bitsy spider. That is just so good. It's so good. It's so I, good. I, I just don't know why. Because like the techno, especially when it comes to Hans Zimmer and uh, doing music for Spider-Man, like that theme is just so good, especially when it comes to Times Square. Yeah, yes. like what I like about that is just like it has memorable moments. And my go-to favorite moment of all time is Times Square with Electro because, like, he just steals it. He is hungry. He is power of it himself. And he will get that power wherever, whatever the cost may be. So Electro is just not only so good, but basically, and I just, like, thought of this myself. He, like, he's seen. The spotlight is on him now. He, he has eyes on him. And, like, doing all this stuff, like, he doesn't realize it. And he basically doesn't care because, like, you're going to look at him no matter what. Like, that that just came on my mind. Wow. <laughs> and, and just to top it on that, Jackson, this goes back to what you talked about, how the, this movie does stuff that's there, – there's some aspects that are somewhat similar to the Raimi films, but it also does its own thing for the most part. And I think one of the things that it does for on its own with its own unique voice is blending the seriousness tone with camp as parts. I think Electro, um, especially in the fight scenes, it uh, like it's very campy the approach, but Electro himself is very much a threat. But something I think, and this is something uh, that I think too often and not too many superhero movies go a little bit overboard with nowadays and they tend to fail at it. They make Electro a, uh, a, a tragic character. They don't overly simp- uh, um, uh, make him sympathetic, which uh, I think works for, for this movie. Like, you know, like, oh, man, it's really messed up what happens to him. But it's like, oh, you're about to destroy the city, though. <laughs> nah, you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> uh, they, they all have him preaching about the revolution and nothing. It's like, nah, he just becomes a villain, which... Sometimes that's all you need. Uh, but Jackson, what are some of your full thoughts on Electro in the movie? Uh, well, really quickly, I want to mention something Alex did. I don't get why people don't like the dubstep in this movie. It's so fun. Like, it's the so itsy good. Bitsy, the itsy bitsy spider thing. That's so, that's classic <laughs> Spider-Man. That's taunting him. Why don't y'all like this? I don't get it. I, I'm because <laughs> superhero movies have to be brooding and serious and wiping out all half of life in the universe nowadays. Just especially, especially how they did it, which is so scary. Just like the techno sounds too. It's like it, it brings that intensity. It's right, like exactly. like he like Electro thinks like I know I'm gonna whoop you. I know I'm gonna whoop yeah. you, and I'm just like it's just fun to me it's like so he's good. having fun <laughs> yes exactly uh but anyways no uh i really enjoy their portrayal of electro here uh i i don't know how much like it thematically fits in with everything the movie is trying to do because i think the movie is trying to do a lot but jamie fox's portrayal is just so energetic and fun at every moment and once again speaking on the design I like the design. I have no issues with it. I think they do some clever and fun things with it. 
uh and just the like pure intensity of max dylan is such an interesting change of pace to basically any other superhero villain that we get uh and i also just find it interesting how his whole goal is to get into the spotlight it's not dissimilar now that i think about it and i'll be talking about this more uh to mysterio in far from home it's just a bit less aggrandized and a bit more to a a a different kind of viewpoint on it i think that's uh that's kind of an interesting play on it especially to a character like spider-man uh in a universe where he is the only superhero i find that interesting especially with the comparison mysterio both at the end of the day both of them have horrible consequences on both Mm -hmm. spider-man's lives you know they play an indirect part in it or not but i agree with everything y'all said about electro because something um i think everyone can agree that it has become a trope where you have the bubbly awkward character who's a nerd with glasses who eventually gets to glow up and becomes this menacing villain but i think the thing that a lot of movies, especially something like Wonder Woman 1984, that did something similar. Um, this one keeps the core of why the character is doing what they're doing in the first place. You understand it. Um, it's uh, it's clear. And like Jackson said, even though it may not work fully thematically like it should, because the movie has so much it's trying to pack into what is the longest Spider-Man movie we understand his motivation and it's very clear and him transforming is not out of nowhere because we know at the end of the day, Oscorp is manipulating the common people in the city and they make sure to establish that. Like if you look at certain parts, uh, as Spider-Man swinging through the city, there are things where you see Oscorp workers like carrying stuff out like people's places and whatnot. I'm like, Oscorp is a horrible, horrible place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things where my only issue with Oscorp's involvement in the movie is mainly towards the end with a certain mm-hmm. scene that we'll get to later. Everything else, um, I think, is uh, perfectly fine. It's just the movie just maybe then they have so many plot threads. But overall, I think the stuff with Electro keeping his motivation and how his, his self-obsession is such a great mirror to Peter's own personal obsessions Peter's pretty much fighting himself by the end, but more supercharged, especially because how Peter's always quipping that's his way of being campy while being serious. Electro's way of being campy is making dubstep music while playing itsy bitsy spider and trying to kill it's Peter. So good. It's, it's so good. It's, 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 it's creative. It's, it's visually pleasing. Like, I think this mm-hmm. is the best looking visual uh best looking spider-man we got when it comes to the action scenes because those electro scenes and the way he makes peter have to bob and weave they are very kinetic and you really feel the frustration and um and and a sense of tension as peter is desperately trying to try to dodge and not get those web shooters electrocuted so i think that part works but Let's get to the, the big, big thing that I think most people think is at least a good part of the movie for, for those who don't like it. Um, more y'all, either of y'all can interject on this. What are y'all's opinions on how they handled the, the Peter and the, and the Gwen relationship? We're not going to talk about the ending just yet, but what are y'all's thoughts on how they handled the Peter and the Gwen relationship in the sequel compared to the first movie? I think it's, like, good. 
And especially when it comes to like that beginning part, like they have an off again and off again, on again and off again, like um, relationship. Like this is like the first time they've broken up. Like, like, like Gwen says, like you do this all the time. And just like I said, in my like other review was like, this dives deep into the relationships of Peter Parker. He cannot have everything. And I, what I love about like the direction that they took is that like, again, Peter has to sacrifice what he wants in order to keep his like friends and like other people in his life safe, but also to make sure that like um, people need Spider-Man. And even when they're not breaking up, those like moments of like um, reconnecting, just like all these types of stuff, again, they, they have great chemistry and it's just so good, especially when it comes to that chemistry when they're broken up how much of them need each other the most. I cannot believe how well that um, they handled that. And it's something that I just like, because like he's just, just trying to make sure that he does not lose any more people. Because after um, Captain Stacy's um, uh, death and like the first one, he does not want to have another one that is going to impact not only him, but the other people around him and to make even more chaos. So the direction of that is just really magnificent. I can I can't I can't say anything else. It's just like well done. The chemistry, the relationship, the meaning of what you want and what is right for other people. That's that's just something the choices that Peter has to deal with is just like such like a core thing about him that's what makes spider-man great as a character it's like you not only have like powers but you also have huge responsibilities like you never would have thought that you would have to take up especially being a part of a hero so like yeah, like mark webb did a fantastic job in that jackson you mind if i interject before you go on before you Absolutely. start go right ahead Man, I just want to touch off with what Alex was saying about like the, when Peter and Gwen would have this conversation about how he always would do that to her. I think a lot of that's up because Mark Webb does some great blocking in those conversation scenes. And I think that goes overlooked a lot because it's like you can talk about how messy the script is as much as you want. That's fine. It's all subjective. Can we talk about how some how great the conversations are just directed, especially um the way Peter uh, Peter does so much to be obsessed with how he wants his relationship to with Gwen to be like, but he doesn't want to put in the work. How he wants how he wants his thing about his parents, but also doesn't want to put in the work. How he wants his stuff with his aunt, but doesn't want to put in the work. Every connection he has with anyone in this movie, he doesn't want to put in the work, but he wants these perfect angles. And as much as the movie feels rushed. Uh, that's something I can't deny or defend. It is a very rushed movie because of so many moving parts. But I think a way to rationalize the rushed, rushed approach is that a lot of it is because of Peter's perception of time is so rushed because he's trying to do so much at once. And it has such a strain of his relationships. And also, this is me stretching, it is a great uh, um, analogy for uh, being a strain on the filmmaking itself. It's like Webb knew to work within the limitations that he knows he was working within, and he knew to use that to 
his advantage in, uh, in, in the best way possible, which is why the scenes when Peter and Gwen are normally interacting, you feel that both of them are trying to rush at some sort of angle, but they don't know how to get to it just yet. And that ends up having uh, consequences later. Uh, Jackson, what are your thoughts on what me and Alex have discussed so far and your other and your own thoughts on Peter and Gwen's relationship in the movie? Uh, my overall thoughts and uh, like some of this is like kind of with just the movie in general uh, that I think is encapsulated by this. I like what they were going for, but, uh, uh, and uh, I think the actors, uh, you know, a- Andrew and Emma, incredible, incredible, incredible performances here uh, do hold this up. Well, my main issue is I don't think that it was given enough time to properly breathe and give it the impact that it needed. Uh like a, a big thing, like, and a thought that I had is I really think the first breakup maybe should have happened at a different point in the movie than it did. Uh, and, and if not earlier, later, whenever, uh, it, it does happen very early on. Uh, besides that, uh, it's like the first <laughs> 25 minutes of the movie it happens because it's right after the graduation scene. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like uh, actually, you, I think it should have come later. I'll commit to that. Uh, largely because I feel like including more of that relationship in this film, especially considering what happened at the end of the last film uh, and then having that breakup and potentially even showing more of Peter. Cause it, it, uh, Gwen does say you do this to me all the time, Peter. We've only seen him do it once kind of, and that was after the funeral. If we saw him do it more and more throughout the film and then the breakup happens, the I break up with you, uh, moment from Gwen there I feel like that would have been more impactful and led more and would have led better into them reconnecting uh, and of course the eventual end uh, but with what they had to work with and the amount that is in this film I think they did a fine job and it's mostly held together by Andrew and Emma just simply being the best I think that's one of the weaknesses I have of the movie is that I think if this was any other characters who didn't aren't based on pre-existing properties, I would have mind them breaking up that early in the movie because that just plays on how Mark Webb, like, and especially in Five Days of Summer, he really likes playing on the irrational thinking of teenagers as seen uh, on high schoolers or people about to go on to college uh, after high school. He really knows how to play on that ignorance that feels like complete out of nowhere, like you were saying, as a negative for the film. And I feel like that will work fine anywhere else, but you are continuing an overarching story about pre-established characters where people are like, we know they're supposed to have a strong connection. We may, well, probably should, if, if Mark Webb was fully able to do his thing, this should have been the third movie in this uh, Peter Gwen uh, trilogy. This should have been a trilogy in itself rather than hoping to God people play the game that looked horrendous <laughs> on the on the on the console at that time. But um because I'm not sure how much y'all know about the stuff um I, I think it's safe to say uh if you if, since we have been talking a lot about spoilers, everyone knows the horrific ending where Peter does not save Gwen at the very end of the movie. And what 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 makes it well, I feel like doesn't work in some moments of the relationship of how they play on the motif of time. They, if you're someone who has even the slightest knowledge of Spider-Man's life is tragedy or know anything about any type of like breakup story like this, it feels like a much better YA movie. 
Gwen's death isn't as impactful as it should be. And I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm, I'm still, it's still one of the most horrific scenes I've seen in the comic book movie because it's just sad because they have done a lot of good work with Peter himself in these two movies. But um, if you're someone who's read, read the comic where she dies, when you look at the cover of that first issue, it's Spider-Man and all his loved ones around him. He's like, someone's dying. I don't know who it's going to be. And it's not until the last few pages you're like, oh, shit, it's Gwen uh, who dies. It was left a mystery. No one knew who was really dying. It would have been different if Peter had more of his relationships in this movie that felt like any of them could have died. But there was never a time we felt like Aunt May could have died or Harry could have died. It always felt like Gwen could die, especially of how much he kept seeing uh, Captain Stacy. And I wish there was more of a hint on if you were to watch this for the first time, you would not have got that feeling that only Gwen could have died. So I wish maybe have Peter have a few more friendships, not like people like fully fleshed out characters, but like some other close friends um, on the side that he would see where you could have felt like it could have been any of them, which is why I wish a story like this probably will work better as a third film rather than um, the middle child of what could have been a trilogy. Uh, so that's my thoughts on uh, on that. It just it needed much more mystery to who could have died. Just so in a day and age where the Internet's big, if you know anything about Spider-Man, you Google it like, oh, who's going to die in the Amazing Spider-Man 2? Oh, Gwen? <laughs> who would have thought? But I, I uh, worry y'all's thoughts on that. Do you think the movie... If this, if we already had like a second film and this was the third film, and we we Peter had uh, a couple more relationships, do you think uh, Gwen's death would have been more impactful if you thought it could have been other people instead of her? Uh, I actually had this thought uh, while you were speaking, and uh, and to just say, I would say yes, it would have been more impactful, uh, largely because I think of the way movies are made. Uh, and there would have been an already preconceived expectation because say it was like they would maybe in uh, already established the Flash and Peter relationship or the Harry Peter relationship, that kind of stuff. These more minor characters off to the side because Gwen is clearly the secondary protagonist uh, almost. Uh, and if they were to be hinting at a, at, a, at a certain death coming at the end of the film, everybody would assume it's going to be one of the side characters because that is the easy, safe option. But if it were to be Gwen, it would be made all the more surprising and impactful, even beyond the knowledge of the comics. Uh, just once again, knowing how movies are made, uh, it, it, I think it would have added uh, a, an extra impact to it. And like the same thing, like for me, like I would... You know, I don't know how like people would feel, but I would like to see um, their own interpretation of like the Daily Bugle, because like Peter is just talking. Well, he's emailing um, J. Jonah Jameson about like um picks. I like to keep it in. But I would like to see like um that side of Peter's um life. He's like working, taking pictures of Spider Man. I do feel like uh, it should like. Spread out even further with um the relationships between um 
Peter's life, not just like Harry and Gwen, but just like some other things um too, um just like um just like uh, Miss Brandt and like all the other uh, little side characters that Peter um just like knows. I think that if you would have like shown that, just shows like the the love life, the friend life, the work life. I think if you added those three elements to it, it would have balanced things out and shows like. Any one of them could die, but which one has the most um, effect on Peter? Obviously, you could say Gwen, but like, just not like a little bit flesh out, but just like small interactions that like are meaningful to like Peter. I think that would have worked. I agree with all of what y'all said, just because I, I just feel like that the death itself is already shocking because they were the two characters that I think people would agree are the best parts of these movies, even if they like or love or hate or are made with the movie. But I just feel like there should have been some sort of mystery on who could have died within uh, Peter, within uh, within Peter's life. I'll have a problem with how it's presented. I think the death mm-hmm. is handled very, very well, especially because the person who caused it is Peter's best friend. Mm-hmm. um in, in the movie so i think that aspect works very very well um here's something i want to bring up that i feel like while i was watching it there's a character then that's in this movie that i was fine with but the more i thought about it i feel like if you didn't mention their name that would have been perfectly fine if you looked at the credits you'd be like oh it's that character really felt like they would have been better out. And I'm not even saying this is a flaw of the movie. I just found it odd because Jackson, you told me this has been discourse of people and this yep. is ridiculous. Um, I think it would have been better off if they did not name drop Felicia, uh, um, uh, what was it? Felicia, Felicia Hardy. Hardy. Yeah, Felicia yeah. Hardy. It would have been, I think it would have been much better. People would not have been so uh, up in their butts about it if they just didn't say her name. Mm-hmm. Just because even I found it odd with how um, they name drop her name. It's like they're looking at the camera like, Felicia Hardy. Ha. Huh? Huh? <laughs> like, like I, don't have, I don't have like an issue if it's just the way, I think it was Dane DeHaan, the way he delivered it as Harry. It just felt like, hey, for those who read the comics, it's it's Felicia. Look, it's Look, Felicia look at Black this. Cat. Look at, look at this. Cat. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you didn't know, she had all, all black. Black nail polish, just in case she didn't know, she's gonna become Black Cat. Yeah, and, and she be eavesdropping too because, like, <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> like, like, wait, like, Harry's just at his desperate point. What does she does? She gives classified information that, like, she knows, and of course, like, she knows that because, like, Black Cat, like, sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, like, I will say the way that they had her character act, I'm like, that's some nice nods of how uh, Black Cat eventually acts. That's fine. I just think it would have been cooler if they just didn't say her name. Like, she was just a, like she was just an employee. If you just having to look at her badge, it's like, oh, Felicia Hardy. Cool. Mm-hmm. Move on. But the way Dave DeHaan was just like, Felicia Hardy. Hey, I, I feel like no, was, like, it wasn't him who like... said it. It was like, oh, what's your name? Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like he was like, "What's your name?" And then she says her name, and she's looking at him, but she's really looking at the camera saying it. That's what it was, and yeah. that was so weird. 
it's almost like she like um took like a number like you take in the supermarket and there's like instead of like say like your number waiting on like um like um whatever it is that you want it's like like your name felicia hardy got your order ready <laughs> yeah 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 I, I remember it clearly because he asked her um what's what's her name she says her name and then he says you all um uh, work for her now. That's that's what that scene was. Yeah, just, just, it, it's just those things where I think stuff like that. We'll, we'll talk about the ending in a second. If you just didn't make stuff as obvious, people wouldn't been as annoyed with this movie. Because most of the time, when people have the discourse about this movie, it's a bit hyperbolic. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot that you can easily criticize or defend with this movie because I think so much of it is too open ended. To the point where it's an it's an inherently divisive film, but there are some complaints where people are like, "Man, the Sinister Six stuff is all up in your face." In comparison to what we get from MCU movies nowadays, not that much, honestly. Like it's there, and I don't need to see Doc Ock's arms. I don't need to. See, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't need to see the vulture's wings. Um, the Venom show- symbiote is there. That's in the deleted scene. Thank God. <laughs> yeah because i was watching the movie you know. and i made sure like it's the venom symbiote scene in this okay. movie it's not in the movie okay. that was in the deleted scene so if you watch one of the deleted scenes the symbiote is already there mm-hmm. but it's not in the final product thank thank, thank god because because i was looking for that i'm like where's venom <laughs> where is he <laughs> where is he like if they just showed like the lair and then they just showed the rhino suit for the ending i would have had no problem with that um, but, uh, especially since we're going to see they were going to show the rhino anyway so it would have been cool but I, I, I see ox arms the goblins uh, glider stuff I see the vultures wings uh, I think maybe you see a dab of Mysterio's cape I don't know why it's there maybe it's I see something I know it'll need to be there also I just like it's also like shown in like the end credits too like where they show like the amazing spider-man 2 logo you see like a talisman i like i can't make it out it looks like a tiger and i was like i like it bro is that supposed to be like craven the hunter yeah craven yeah craven so even the credits they couldn't resist being like oh we got villains playing no y'all don't because because the (laughs) mouse because because mickey showed up and said oh he's mine oh uh, also, like the mask too. Like I, I essentially thought of like chameleon. <laughs> yeah. Like one thing, I just think an easy fix you could have done: just show the rhino suit and show the goblin stuff because we see those in the movie. Yeah, we see those in the movie. Or because Harry discovered this, have Harry discovered the stuff before he meets Electro? And Electro, there's an outfit that he could have given Electro just so we know where he got it from. Like, there's easy ways that you can rearrange scenes and take some stuff out for the Sinister Six and easily make it work and part of the story. Especially if Harry puts something together for uh, Max as Electro from down there. That would make more sense where he got that suit from. But, 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 but I, I will say, I was like, this didn't need to be here. I wasn't as annoyed by it though. No, uh, yeah, what are some of what? What are the rest of y'all's thoughts? Because I know we're talking about right now. What are the rest of y'all's thoughts on? Is the Sinister Six stuff in this movie as bad as people have made it out to be throughout the years? 
I don't think so. <laughs> I, I really don't think so. Like, it's a lot. It's too much. It might dampen the impact of the characters in the future. Also, y'all can chill out. It's not that bad. It's it's gratuitous, overly done setup. Absolutely. But it's not entirely in your face about it. It's the same thing with the Felicia Hardy thing. Like, all it is, like, especially with Felicia Hardy, it's small little tidbits of setup. So these characters are already pre-introduced to you. And it isn't as overwhelming when we introduce a lot of characters and we don't have to make 17,000 films to get it done. Yeah, like like my issue with the, I don't think what I said with the Felicia thing was an issue, just a personal preference. Like, just right, don't name drop her at that point. Do I think that's a detriment to the movie? No, because there's other issues with this movie in regards to how overstuffed it is. But that and the Sinister Six stuff, the only real issue with the Sinister Six I had issues with was seeing stuff for villains who are in the movie. That's mm-hmm. it. If you took out those the, the, those that five to eight seconds of those of Doc Ock and the Vulture stuff, I will not have an issue with it because it's already been incorporated to the plot because the two right. main villains in the movie have already been are already using the technology or established. That's where all the stuff from the beginning of the movie comes from. From Oscorp, just move some scenes around. It's not that bad. Alex, what about you? What are your thoughts on it? I know me and Jack's already said ours. I have two different like thoughts. Like one thought was like, you know, like the Century Six stuff, if they were to go that route, I was like, they're probably like, what if we did this? I was like, it's like that's bossy. I like, I don't know how you're gonna do it. And then we got no way home that's about to be doing it too. <laughs> but also, like, I think they were trying to like um just show like um Peter's like core villains with those suits. They wasn't gonna like get a bunch of like Peter's villains all at once. They were probably gonna like do it one at a time. It's like sound like, like recruit this person with like this person wears a suit and they wreak havoc in the city. And then like um Spider-Man saves the day. Like I think if they would have did that route, like if we had like a Spider-Man 3, they start doing that. And then like Peter starts like um saving everybody and puts them all to prison. And then you have the moment where like they all break out. It's like, well, okay, we released them one and one, but what if they all came together and like finally used their powers to take down Spider-Man? If that was the case, like sign me up. But like it was like a one-on-one type of thing. I, I didn't mind it, but if they were gonna like jump all this together. I feel like that, especially throughout like the movie, I feel like it wasn't earned. I feel like we need to earn the Sinister Six. Cause like again, like we don't we haven't seen like the characters they they would establish. Like who would be Vulture and like the Tacit Universe? Like who like who would be um Craven? Who will be like all these sort of like villains? So it's like it's all jumbled, but one on one and then a big team up, especially in that third one, if that was my movie, that would have been smart. Yeah, like uh, the easiest thing to do is just keep the stuff for have Electro stuff already down there, have the scene earlier in the movie and just show Electro what he wears and the goblin. And then you show Rhino later. That's all you needed to show. I think if you made those few changes, it would have been much better. Um, And then something else with how they were saying up the Sinister Six, 
when you really think about it, there's not that much setup for the Sinister Six in this movie as people made it out to be. It's Zero only eight a, seconds. It's a few seconds. Like on YouTube, mm-hmm. it's a 15 second clip of that underground lair. It's not even that long. Like people want to, here's my thing with superhero discourse with, the, with these type of movies. We, we criticize this movie for the Sinister Six setup that's really small, but people give Age of Ultron the pass of how much it, of how much, how much that movie throws in. Like Alex, you watched yeah. that movie just not too long ago. You can attest to how much that Avengers movie puts in so much, can't you? It, yeah, it was like um, it, it was like so like bloated too. Like, like I know for a fact that like after like um the what happened in the Avengers one, they want to take it a step further and like deal with Ultron. I feel like it was like rushing into itself. And basically, I just feel like it, it like it would have much of a buildup and like overpiling with his like robot army too. I think Ultron is like I'm fine. Like I think that um what like the character of itself was like all right. But it's like it wasn't like earn. I feel like that's what happened in Tasm 2. It's like you need to have like a build up and pretty much I feel like Ultron <coughs> is like a very higher stakes villain. That like uh, like globally like they they do it but I feel like Ultron is like more than like what he was on like Avengers Age of Ultron and then like also in Age of Ultron you have you have a longer scene there that's egregious compared to stuff with the Sinister Six it's like fifteen seconds in Age of Ultron you have that scene that sets up Thor Ragnarok with Thor in the well. That's a three minute. That's what's that like a two three minute scene? That's more egregious. And then you have Tony and Cap randomly arguing just to be like, "Civil War is coming." <laughs> like goodness, great. That and then of course the stuff with uh, Ulysses Claw and and like the vibranium. That's their uh, Black Panther for the future. It's like some of these scenes are much longer and more egregious. Than this small little stuff in Tasm 2, but that gets a pass. But we're going to make this these few seconds sound bigger than they actually are. Because at least at the end of the day, say what you want about those images of Sinister Six members we didn't see, that base itself and Oscorp still connect to that story as overstuffed as it may be. And then something else that I've always heard this issue with with this movie. And I'm honestly baffled that I I have actually read this. I'm honestly baffled by what I read. There are people who hate that scene where Peter saves the kid who was getting bullied that made the wind turbine. I was literally about to mention that that is one of my favorite scenes in any superhero movie ever. Yeah, especially because that scene makes me like the ending to that movie because that kid comes back. And I, I, I read a whole thing from multiple people for the past few days of people criticizing the usage of that kid for a quote-unquote cheap emotional reaction from the audience that isn't earned. Let's say, if you know the character of Spider-Man, regardless, and if you have a problem with that scene... You need to hand over your Spider-Man fan card because, like, uh-uh, get get, get out of here with that mess. It's yeah. like that 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 is what Spider-Man is. Like he like he helps people. Like that, like, come on, man. 
he he walked the kid to his house so he was all like okay if like a- i if i meet anyone who complains about that scene hands it's it, on site man, it's i on have site. never heard people take call a precious scene like that emotionally manipulative i'm okay. deceased fun fact about that scene though that was entirely andrew garfield yeah uh yeah he was like hey we should put in this scene and the director was like yeah that's really great uh and that's another reason why andrew garfield is the best spider-man and he was in the suit the most in that movie compared to other spider-man actors mm-hmm. and what a suit it is like um, a, a major upgrade in itself like i love the bigger white eyes in here it's like like out of all the spider-man films we've gotten like if you want to talk about true comfortable accurate like suit that is a suit that you must have in your number one spot because like that is like the basic suit that you can get right and i just like that because like the, 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 the mask is good the symbol is great and the and the colors with the web webbing is like uh, I would definitely uh, would like to cosplay that. <laughs> and, and just to throw shade and MCU stands even further, uh, this Spider-Man suit is better than all the MCU Spider-Man costumes in movie form because they don't CGI over it when he's standing still. Right. Like, Actually I like the suits the suit. on their own in those MCU movies, but when they CGI over them for no reason, certain points, like, this is distracting. Mm-hmm. And then... I want to know what y'all thoughts are on this scene. Uh, this is something I think The Amazing Spider-Man 2 does better than Spider-Man 2 by Sam Raimi. Uh, more than likely a hot take on my end. So y- y'all remember the scene in, the Sp- in Spider-Man 2 where Peter tells May about how Uncle Ben died and how mm-hmm. he let the guy get away? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like this. I like the scene, but I always felt, felt like there was something missing uh, at the end, after Aunt May just leaves, and then he sees her again later, it's kind of like they just they move along. I don't think it's bad. I just felt, me personally, knowing their relationship, especially in the comics, I want something more. There's a scene here between Peter and May. Yeah, is one of my favorite scenes in a Spider-Man movie, and it's the one where she is like, "What's this on the wall about him and his him looking up more stuff about his um, his dad and his mom." And she just is just honest with him. She's about you're searching for people who they never came back. I raised you. You're my boy. And the way that uh, Sally Fields delivered delivers that line um, packs a much more emotional uh, response for me as a viewer compared compared to that one scene in Spider-Man Two between um, uh, Peter and Aunt May. That scene. I'm saying that's bad. I just have a preference for the one here in Amazing Spider-Man Two. Uh, what are y'all's thoughts on that scene in particular? It's good. It, it, it's honestly just so good. Cause like, let let's be real. It's like, P, like Peter and Aunt May is like, like May is such a, a guiding soul to Peter, and like he basically just was raised by her like like peter is a son that um aunt may would never thought that she would had like she would never thought of like raising like um her own 
um nephew into like so much of a comfort and for seeing um peter um like parents leave and like him struggling it's like like i i just want to be there for you i just want to hold you and never let you go i just don't want you to go down this level of pain that you already went down when it came to the first movie i don't want you to do that your life is so good and i just want to make sure that everything is like all right obviously like they could talk about everything but like peter would like not be upfront with man a couple other things but one thing that he will always be upfront with may is that like I appreciate what you um, did for me when I was a kid leading up to me now. And like you, like you will always um, be my aunt and you are just so much more than that. It's like, that's the relationship of peer dialogue. It's like family um, gets reconnected in a way and like they stay attached to each other. I think that's what Tassim um, did. And I do like uh, what Sam did in um, the Raimi movies, but in here, like it, it, like the emotion level is just skyrocketing it is really the performances like the actors do so like hands down to that yeah like even though i that's a, that's an issue i do have with tasm too is that i wish there was more peter and aunt may scenes i feel like that's something that was lacking a bit but that's something that shows the strength of these movies that i think gets overlooked a lot the performances carry so much depth and nuance in their line deliveries that they sometimes for the most part not fully but for the most part make up for the lack of scenes that we don't always get jackson what are some of your thoughts on on uh, peter and may's uh scene that we were just talking about uh i definitely agree it's a great very emotional scene uh and I, I really, I kind of just, like, I don't think I can say much more than uh, you you two. And I do kind of want to speak on the difference between that scene and what they do in uh, Raimi's Spider-Man 2. That I think is kind of an interesting distinction between them. Is because you're not, you're not wrong, Jay, that it partially feels like something is missing. And maybe this is me reading into it a little bit with Spider-Man 2, but this is a gen, genuine belief I have about that film. Is that after that moment... It is, and what comes next, it is a confirmation to May that Peter is Spider-Man. And that's always my favorite incarnation of May is the one who knows Peter is Spider-Man but doesn't say anything. Uh, I feel like that's one of the differences here that makes it more interesting is that this May does not suspect Peter of being Spider-Man. She's too wrapped up in her own things to fully realize that. And I just, I think that's an interesting difference and distinction between the two. I think that's a great distinction, especially because it shows that this May in the Tasm movies doesn't have that suspicion because she's more obsessed on holding on to her, holding on to her, uh, her son in a way, mm -hmm. uh, Peter, rather than it goes back to the whole thing about how every character is so obsessed to the point where they almost lose uh, that one thing that they love. And she almost lost hold of Peter because of her obsession. I want to hold on to it so much that she doesn't allow him to explore like his past. And mm -hmm. I think that's what works. But to your point about um, that thing about Spider-Man 2, about how it kind of hints that May in the Raimi films knows that Peter's Spider-Man, I agree with that 100%. And that's why it still bothers me, specifically because a few years before that scene happened in the comics and that current in, the, in that run of Spider-Man before Civil War happened, there is, there is a story where May comes into Peter's bedroom. Peter's all bloodied up and banged, trying to sleep. 
She looks through his stuff and sees his ripped up Spider-Man suit. May leaves, writes the letter to Peter about how she kind of has always suspected, but she wasn't always sure. And she had to go and clear her thoughts. And then I got to send you all this, uh, this story online. It's a great one issue where she finally comes back a day later after going off for the night and she confronts Peter and they talk about it. And it's one of the most, and gives May closure for what happened to Ben. And I feel like, um, I, I'm really sure this happened before the Raimi movies even happened. And I feel, I feel like the only reason something like that wasn't included because so much of what Raimi takes is from uh, the McFar- McFarlane and Deco era. So in the 90s, 80s and 70s era, Spider-Man, like a combination of that. So I feel like, if only if he looked at a few things from the early 2000s, you could have included that really great scene. And again, to what you said, I think it's a great distinction between the two versions. But for me, as someone who read that issue before watching Spider-Man 2, I was like, where is this? <laughs> I, like the whole time watching it, I was like, where is this part? Because it's it's such a, because in one issue, she finds out, walks away, and the story's told through May's point of view. And then the second, the, uh, either the issue afterwards or a few issues later, it's that really great moment between the two. And it's really one of the best Spider-Man issues out there. But I just wanted to share that in case y'all haven't heard of that issue. It is, is a great read of May finally getting closure of Ben's death. But um, just to begin uh, wrapping up our thoughts, uh, do any of y'all have any final comments on uh, Tasm 2 or any of the amazing Spider-Man movies you've talked about. Sadly, there's not a third one to talk about because good old Mickey said he's mine, huh? There is one thing that I would like to bring up in relation to your Mickey comment, and What's I'm that? not sure if you two know this, uh, is that the original plan was to cross over the amazing Spider-Man films with Andrew Garfield with the MCU. It not through multiversal shenanigans or anything like that, like is, you know, what is happening with No Way Home, but to integrate it like the New York events in TASM 1 would have somehow connected to the Avengers in some way, and then TASM 2 would have eventually led into that, which I just think is interesting. And and if you look at the leaked emails, uh, you'll see that Kevin Feige's distaste for the rushed elements of Amazing Spider-Man 2 is what led to that idea not happening uh, and why they just fully rebooted it for themselves. Uh, so I yeah, I've read those emails. Feige, does, Feige not only did not like the Tassel movies, he did not like Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker or Spider-Man, it seems, which is odd because it uh, seems like because it seemed like other people behind the scenes and other leaked stuff from Disney, they wanted him. They did not want to recast. Yeah, from from what I understand, he liked his performance. He did not like the portrayal of the character in the script. Yeah, even though, like, I think the character itself, despite what people may think in the movies, the portrayal of the character is honestly was honestly fine. Mm-hmm. That and Garfield already looked like the perfect Peter that was going to college. Yep, we we could have had Chad Peter in the MCU in college. Because there's, I watched a great video on YouTube on what would happen if the Tazen movies uh, were a part of the MCU. It has some great stuff, especially of how in the story they don't, they have Peter actually survive the snap. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. But but yeah, I think 
as much as I like Holland and the, as uh, Peter and Spider-Man now, it, I, it, I do feel like, I think we all agree on this. Andrew's time was really short-lived. He did not get that closure. Make the um, amazing Spider-Man 3, you cowards. Yeah, it, it, it's just like so dirty, like the reasoning. Um, they, they canceled the third one. I don't know it's because like um, the idea that they wanted to do, I believe someone said that like they wanted to like use like I mean, like the I would say like the venom not like venom but like the serum for like Green Goblin and like I heard they were trying to like raise the dead and Captain Stacy which is like doing that it was like I I don't know how that would have done but like I'm just like getting nah. A lot of the cancellation for The Amazing Spider-Man 3 did come from the Sony and Disney talks about bringing Spider-Man into the MCU. And also some of Andrew Garfield's comments about Sony outside of the film that got him fired. Uh-huh. It's like, didn't it? Because it like, wasn't like the world where he said like they didn't want to go through with Andrew was because like he actually like missed like a meeting. Something like that, yeah. And, like, yeah, he missed the really- meeting because he's like, there are they already Sony already has a habit of treating their workers like really bad. Why well, I want to support this, which they do like most studios, but he 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 spoke out on it. Thank God. Yeah, like that's really salty because like honestly, like this is like a really grounded like Spider-Man universe. I would like to see where they would have gone. And like my Sinister Six comment is like if they want to do that, and like I I think that would definitely work or just pretty much like uh elaborate like even further with like some like other like players into the game why i feel like um maybe we could have gotten like um like the reveal of like the daily bugle crew or or felicia might have like a bigger role or just um something like that just like I don't know. I I think it would have been really good if like we like established more on Peter. Cause like when you look at um Tasms one and two, you can honestly tell like this is like a beginning point of Peter's life after like like just coming to peace with like Gwen's death. There, there is so much story that you could have told with that. It's like another side of Peter's life that we could have like seen. It's like that was just like unfinished and i feel like we were missing out on that especially where if they i would have liked for tasm 3's villain to have been venom specifically Mm -hmm. not the venom everyone's familiar with with eddie brock but specifically bring back flash thompson and do an adaptation of agent venom because everything in the tasm reboot was all about being different from the Raimi films, but like Jackson, you brought up the first movie, there's still uh, too many similarities. When they keep those similarities, still bring in Venom, but just do a different version of it to still please what the execs want. We still make it fresh for your, your audience. Like, I just think there's so much potential here, but a lot of the potential got squandered. Uh, it was already dead on arrival. Thanks to like the influence of the Dark Knight, the studio trying to catch up to the MCU at that point. And then um, um, Disney, uh, let's be honest, afraid to take risks by incorporating this universe and course correcting. So instead, they just started over from scratch and got a and got a 15 year old boy. It's mm-hmm. it, 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 instead a of going teeny into little college, child, a little child. But yeah, let's begin to uh, wrap up. Alex, we'll start with you, Jackson, and then me. Alex, what are your final thoughts on uh, on TASM 2? 
I think TASM 2 is definitely overlooked. I think the people that hate this movie don't understand the 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 themes and like the relationships that Peter goes through. It's like if you love Spider-Man and just like his like not only his relationships but Peter Parker um himself like the film touches on that. It's like you get more of like um Peter in a way that like I would have never thought like we would actually get. And it's like just like the world of Tasm is just so interesting of in itself. And I do appreciate uh like what we got with these um last two movies, but I think that the icing on the cake, if you were to take it even a step further, it's like give of like Andrew Garfield's like um Peter okay, a nice concluded um ending of way that like sort of like he would never give up on the city no matter how many times he falls he's still gonna get up and try his absolute best so i think the magic is when it comes to like um the task movies is that embrace new things because like it's going to appease you of like the themes that you love about this character and the themes of what makes this character good are the strong points of why we like spider-man's hero because like i said before He's a ordinary person. Like that spider could have bit anybody, but it chose to bit Peter. And with his life, especially with Peter's life, it, it makes it even stronger. And I really want to see more. It's a shame, by the way. <laughs> I think it's funny that the spider decided to bite him, despite the fact that the spiders have his daddy's DNA. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> it could not have bit anyone. They would have died. <laughs> they would have died or... They would have died or they would have ended up like Harry Osborne in this movie, almost dead. It's, yeah, like, right? it's like, I bite you, you're not, I bite you. Oh, there's Peter. Like, that's something that like we did like really for that. I really dislike that Same. they chose that like the only way Peter gets his powers is like through uh, the I blood. don't like that either. It, it's like a, like a whole new generation of Peters. If you get <laughs> bit by a radioactive spider, you can get spider powers like bro, really? <laughs> the exact antithesis to end of the Spider-Verse. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I don't like the fact that it was all based on his dash genetics and why he survived the bite. That, no, just, Oh my god, that's just so dumb. Because I thought it was interesting it was like they uh like elaborated further about like what happened to Peter's parents. I thought that stuff was cool because like I like it, it, it was interesting, something that we never would have thought, but like he just like ruined this. Like we know like Peter's parents are like really like spies and stuff, very secretive. But like if something happened to them, it's just like uh, I, I have no idea, but like that's just just stupid. It's like that's the one thing about Peter is that like it could have happened to anybody, but that spider chose him. Chose him. It also makes Peter a hypocrite where he tells both the kids in both movies that anyone can be Spider Man. Technically, no, they can't. <laughs> they would die. <laughs> and especially in like a, like this has no connection but especially like um into the spider-verse where miles said like you can wear the mask <laughs> no yeah, sure i can wear the mask but i'll <laughs> die doing it 
Yeah, no, 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 no. No, the Parkers next generations can wear the mask. (laughs) Oh my god, that that's literally like uh, I'm gonna get bit by the spider or dad trying on some Fifty Cent type stuff. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And and honestly, like that's the easy change too. It could just been one of those things where um, the stuff was the stuff was unstable and needed human DNA. You put the dad's human DNA in it. The reason that the blood doesn't, the, the, the stuff from the spiders doesn't work on other people is because they already had human DNA infused into them. You could have easily changed it and been like, well, if you create another spider venom and incorporate a different set of human genetics in it, then you could have easily have replicated or just make Peter's dad's DNA what made the goblin serum. Like, especially because the goblin serum is so monstrous. It all made sense that if you eject a human with another set of human DNA that's heavily infused by toxins, it all made sense why Harry went crazy. But he, putting it in the spiders? No, that <laughs> that that that's really dumb. Uh, Jackson, what are your final thoughts on Tasm too? I think people should learn how to have fun. The Amazing Spider-Man Two is a mess. It's uh, over, over, uh, overstuffed with so many different plot threads and some studio mandated setup. But beyond all that is some great performances, interesting characterization, and some fantastic direction with some of the best Spidey moments we've ever had on the big screen. And people are too mean to it. And I think they should give it another chance because it's, it's good and fun. And let Andrew Garfield be Spider-Man again. Thank you, please. Six out of ten. And then with my final thoughts, I, I'm gonna I'm just I'm gonna just be honest. If people can like um, the first two Star Wars prequels, we can like Amazing Spider-Man too. Goddamn right. If if <laughs> if people if people can like Wonder Woman 1984, we can like uh, the Amazing Spider-Man too. There are a lot of movies that have come in, that have come out that people have universally praised that I know all of, uh, the three of us here have not liked. If people can like those movies, we can like the Amazing Spider-Man too. Like, Eric, I've I've noticed a trend that when it comes to superhero movies, there are ones that people want to unanimously say are good, and which ones are objectively bad. My whole thing is just let people like what they like without feeling the need to gatekeep what people like. Because at the end of the day, there's going to be a movie one day you like that everyone else doesn't. That you're gonna that you have the right to enjoy. And I feel like especially with superhero fans, they have labeled which ones are bad and which ones are good, especially MCU stands, and that's become a real big problem, especially when MCU stands have horrible taste not only in DC movies, but in DC shows and comics. But that's a story for another day. But is this movie really flawed? Yes. Is it overstuffed uh, to the brim of stuff? Yes. For me personally, I think a lot of it works more than it doesn't. I know that's a big unpopular opinion. Most of my issues come from um, some characters not having scenes to breathe, uh, certain scenes um, stretched out uh, stretched out for too long, or just some awkward uh, directing from a few performances that aren't like Peter, Gwen, or Electra, in my opinion. And... There are times when during the day, I don't think the lighting is all that good. That's another, that's that's an issue that has plagued the Tazamuzas that during the day, some of the lighting isn't the best. 
because of it trying to still be too dark in moments, uh, tonally, not visually. But for me, I just find so much of this movie that maybe I am rationalized by a lot of it works, but it's a movie looking back on it, especially in a day and age where we don't get a movie this insane and this visually pleasing as a Spider-Man movie nowadays, unless it's animated. And especially uh, we don't get uh, an actor who is allowed to give a great performance within a superhero movie without, feel, without being restrained in a performance. Say what you want about the script. These actors are allowed to act as much as they want. And we don't, and even as much as like the MCU, we don't get these type of performances that feel, uh, that, that make up for the lack of depth or nuance in the, in a, in the movie itself. Some of the, act, the acting in a lot of superhero movies nowadays just go along with it but they don't allow their acting to enhance the weakened material. And I think sometimes the acting can really enhance what um, uh, can really enhance what's missing. Also, I love Hans Zimmer's score, especially the oh, main, yes. uh, especially uh, Spider-Man's main theme in this movie. That's the shreds. That it's that is a, it. The, mm. Hans Zimmer, good good for you. This is one of your most underrated scores because no one talks about it. That and there's just something uh, I just think, even if you don't like everything else, something about Spider-Man's journey with these two movies, despite their limitations, you feel he's ready for the next stage of his life, aka the college stage, where, as everyone knows, more tragedy happens for Peter Parker <laughs> that he can't escape. That in the movie is just visually pretty to look at. And I love, love, love Mark Webb's directing in this movie. He directs conversations and knows how to present shifting power dynamics with a slight movement of the camera that's still, or one that's sometimes very uh, shaky a bit. I think that adds a lot of depth to what is otherwise missing in a messy movie. So for me, I, lo I love this movie more than a lot of the Spider-Man films out there because I am easy to please. We know this, but no, <laughs> no I, I love this movie flaws and all. Um, I could definitely uh, watch this again when I am ready to be depressed by the ending. Uh, so I would give this personally for me um, a 9.5 out of 10. I know that's really high for a messy movie, but for everything I've said so far, there is a lot in this that just overshadows what really doesn't work that I can't say that much about a lot of superhero movies we're getting nowadays. Like some of them don't aren't willing to take this risk to be messy, but make up for it with everything else in regards to the filmmaking, the story, the characters, and the thematic depth that it has to offer despite how cluttered it is. But yeah, I enjoyed this a lot. And I think we all can agree is that like pretty much just have an open mind about things. Not not just like with like uh Tasm, but like any movie in general, I have an open mind because like what you dislike can turn out to be something that you really like. And, and that's been proven. We're like with a couple of movies that fits um your taste. <laughs> but um but I'm also gonna say this. I don't like how people are hopping the band train now that they like Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker and Spider-Man all because they don't like Holland. Like that's, that's, that's pretty shallow. Like you can't like actually like them because you like them, not because you mm -hmm. dislike this new incarnation of the character. If you don't like one version, that's perfectly fine. But don't say you like this one solely because you don't like this newer version. That's very shallow. All and three Spider-Man actors are great. 
Mm-hmm. It all has something unique to offer. And to say there's nothing there for people to appreciate. Uh, Spider Man discourse is some of the worst discourse you can experience on the internet. People think superhero and uh, entertainment discourse is bad. Try giving your opinion on Spider Man movies. Like, I don't always agree with everyone's take on Spider Man film, but I'm always willing to listen to hear what they like and, and, and don't like. And I think that's what's missing. Letting people take away something different that's good or bad from this character who re- means different things to different people. This character has been around so, so many years. They're going to take away so many different things from the character. What you may see may not be what some other people see. So when people say, oh, if you like this version of Spider-Man Peter Parker, you don't understand understand the character, you, you, uh, you person, that I'm referring to, I don't know who you are out there, but please know you are a piece of shit. And always remember that. Where are y'all's thoughts on that? And uh, like, I agree because, like, <laughs> we, because we, we all know that like Spider-Man is like one of the few um, superheroes out there that has impact a whole lot of people. It's like, <laughs> like people have really like hold that character to their hearts and like just based on like the definitive version of whatever they saw as like the top tier and other tiers that are new to the character, they dismiss it. I feel like that's like so bad, especially when it comes to hardcore Raimi stands that just likes um, Toby Maguire and like Sam Raimi, like the work that they did. Like that was my first introduction to Spider-Man. And I love what they done but i will always look forward to like whatever versions of peter that like we got because like honestly if you are taking your definitive point as like your true peter parker or spider-man and just miss the rest you are setting yourself up to fail to have a good time and see like the true balance of like what andrew and tom some peters like are because like you're basically taking out the experience. It's not fun anymore. You're bringing people down instead of looking people up. It's like, regardless of whatever Spider-Man said, like we grew up with, it's like, always respect people's opinion. Even if you don't, even if you don't agree, don't try to segue yourself into like making other people um, change their mind. Like if I want to change my mind on something, I like, that's on me. Like, I can listen to some people's points and, like, that can help me. But, like, just be respectful. Not everybody's going to like the same way you like. And that is okay. It's not the end of the world. But it's, like, it's up to you. It's, like, what you like and what's important to you. Say, like, if you're you're sticking out, like, stick out. Like, like speak your truth. If that's your version of Spider-Man that you like that people don't like, say it with your chest. Because, like, we we don't want to, like agree on the same thing because honestly that would get boring just like just say true to yourself and don't go to the crowd don't be a follower be your own leader about like certain types of things not just spider-man just like any other character out there that you like and and, and that was tuesday evening with uh uh with pastor with pastor brother rivers thank you very much for coming <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, uh, I'm, over, I'm over here visiting my family. You got my mom. You got my mom over here saying, "Preach, brother, preach." <laughs> Mama Sneed, steal of seal of approval. <laughs> like I'm voting for him. <laughs> uh, so Jackson, you got Jackson. You got follow up after that. Yes. <laughs> 
to summarize to all the toxic spider-man fans watch more movies and touch grass thank you very much <laughs> it, it, it man for people who only have ever watched these spider-man movies and never read a comic try being a comic fan where the interpretation of spider-man changes every time there's a new writer every five to six years <laughs> it, 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 the, the writer changes all the time try to be a comic book fan for once in your life you you think three <laughs> different versions of Spider-Man are different? Man, there's been like 20 writers on this character. Try reading the story on how fans felt about Doc Ock being in Peter's body. People were mad. Try being that. those fans. Uh-huh. Hey, I would like to point out too, like I'm a comic book fan and like I, I never read a single comic book in my life, and I'm considered a comic book fan. I think that's what makes people, because a whole lot of people never grew up with comics. They never had the chance to read, like, what makes this character, like, this person. It's like, if you ever read a comic, that's fine. You want to get into comics, that's fine, too. You are still a comic book fan, even if you um, look at the live action films or just like the character because you like the interpretation that actor brings to that character. That's that's what I like about like being a fan about like this whole um genre of like superheroes. Like you can like something and not um just like be like everyone else. Like I read the story, I read the story. You can look into those stories, but it's okay if you are not familiar if the core story arcs of like Spider-Man or anybody else. Yeah, it's like get used to them changing because all these Marvel characters you're used to in the MCU. Get ready in 10 to 20 years when they're recast and you have a new interpretation. And you're going to have to get used to it with them. You thought it was hard with Spider-Man. Y'all, y'all, you thought your divorce of all these different interpretations of Spider-Man were hard. You're about to have a lot more other divorces of other characters. Y'all, y'all about to have a real hard time. Gotta get used to change. Even if you don't always like it, you will get the one in the future you will eventually resonate with. All because there's one doesn't mean we need 20 angry YouTube videos and disgusting thumbnails or a clickbait about why this ruined my childhood or why this quote unquote ruined the character of Spider-Man. Oh, I didn't know the character of Spider-Man was ruined. I just picked up a new Spider-Man comic just the other day that was brand new and he's okay. He's not ruined. Just a different writer on it. And, and besides, if you don't like a story arc, it's like you could say, like, I just don't like that story. And then the next couple of stories after, like, these stories are good. That doesn't like ruin the character at all. It's like one story does not equal a terrible thing about a character. It's like that story is just bad, but the rest and the new ones that come after that, like, are great. It's like it's not that hard, people. One story and one thing, small tiny detail that changes things does not ruin a character. All right, because like there's a, there's gonna be other interpretations that like we like, just like the same thing as Spider Man. Like we're against Spider Man too, and it's like that game is already good. <laughs> like someone said in our chat, who's listening to our episode, the Spider Man One More Day comic happened. Spider Man still exists. If Spider-Man can survive the one more day story, we we can survive a few different interpretations of this character. Uh, Jackson, you have any more thoughts before we close out? You've all said it great. And I really just think that we need to stop taking part in film discourse ever, always. It's not good. It's not. I'm just trying to have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Just just, just trying to have... Just trying to have fun. I'm not over here to be like, 
I'm not over here trying to have people DM me on Instagram saying, man, you just don't care about the death of Simmons. We know it. Brother, when was the last time you read a book? <laughs> Please, I'm talking to you about see a movie that was made for less than a hundred million dollars. It's so cool. <laughs> it's it's like you're killing Simba by watching Marvel movies. Okay, did you see Spencer yet? Oh, with that girl from Twilight. That help me make this make sense. <laughs> uh, but with that being said, thank you all for listening to our episode. Like before, since this is Spider-Man Week, we do have previous episodes at the time of this being uploaded for individual episodes of the first three Raimi Spider-Man films. All t- both um, Amazing Spider-Man movies are in this episode. And soon, be on the lookout for a special episode that won't have me and Brandon. It'll have three guests hosting an episode for us where they talk about the Holland movies leading up to No Way Home. So be on the lookout for that episode. So and if you like we... hearing me talk, I'm in that one. Yeah, and Jax is going to be on that one. And speaking of, Jackson, where can the good people find you on social media? Uh, they can find me on Letterboxd at Jackson Hendricks at Instagram, Jackson T. Hendricks. And if you're interested in hiring my beautiful voice, you can find me on castingcall.club under Jackson Hendricks. Thank you very much. And Alex, where can the good people uh, find you on social media? You can um, find me on Letterboxd, um, Alex Rivers. I also have an Instagram, um, Alex M Rivers underscore. I also have a Twitter. If you have Twitter on there, I'm Alex Rivers um, 20. And of course, um, I am on TikTok. Um, you can also find me on there. I'm Alex M Rivers to just try to like uh, spread out there. <laughs> And of course, you can always find me at Jason Sneed on Facebook and also at J.Inspiration on Instagram. If you just type in Jason Sneed, I'll be on there. And of course, you can find me on the Cinema Exposure podcast page on Instagram. We can find me and my sick Muppet co-host, Brandon White, who isn't here <laughs> on the Cinema Exposure podcast page on Instagram. We can get access to our link tree. We can have different access to all the platforms that our podcast is on and stay up to date on news on new episodes when episodes drop and whenever we post new TikToks when we review movies that we don't have a chance to talk about on our show. Thank you all for listening and have a good night. Take care and good stay night. amazing and spectacular. <laughs>